Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, joined by my co-host, Justin Ritchie. Today for episode number 50, that's 5-0 of The Extra Environmentalist, we are joined by Robert Neuwirth, journalist and writer, who's going to be talking about informal economies that happen all over the world. And we're also going to be joined by Simon Black, a international man of mystery and entrepreneur. Today, we're talking about one of the world's largest economies that most people don't even know about because it's off the books and off the record. This is the economy that a lot of people, as many as two-thirds of all the workers in the world, are actually a part of. It's a wild concept to even think about that these economies and these peoples and these large economic engines exist without people even knowing about them, and it, which is just wild for people in westernized countries to even think about. The developed economies that we recognized here in North America and Western Europe look nothing like the economies that the rest of the world experience. After we talk to Robert Neuwirth, we're going to investigate the world-traveling man of mystery that is Simon Black, who has no official country that he calls home. In instead, he travels to about 60 countries a year, setting up businesses, setting up business opportunities for himself and, and his team all over the world. Because Simon is in a new country almost every week, we're going to get a snapshot of the global economy and how it's playing out in different countries all around the world. Plus, all your questions answered with John Michael Greer at the end of the show. All that and more on this episode number 50 of The Extra Environmentalist. Robert Neuwirth, thanks for joining us from New York City today to talk about your most recent book, The Stealth of Nations. One of the first things that we're always taught in our economics classes are the dynamics of supply and demand. And I remember when I sat down in my macroeconomics class, we talked about trade-offs between pizzas and CDs and all of these different things. And you've traveled the world and you've discovered that this process doesn't exactly work the way that it's modeled and the way that we're told. And so what have you discovered about the global economy that overturns some of our preconceived ideas? Well, I mean, supply and demand is this 
wonderful fiction that if supply met demand all the time, then there would be no housing shortage and things would be affordable and necessities would be affordable. And of course, that's not the way the economy works at all. We know that, but we still keep this fiction that everything is working on supply and demand. And what I discovered in going to street markets and border regions of the world to do the reporting for Stealth of Nations was that, in fact, supply and demand don't work. Prices are way too high for most people in the developing world. And as a result, they turn to what most economists call the informal economy or the underground economy to get their necessities. I have rebranded that and I call it System D because I don't think there's anything underground or uh, particularly informal about it. It's out there, it's public, it's open and notorious, and also it's dealing mostly in legal products, so there's nothing sort of clandestine about it. It's really a parallel economy that provides the necessities for people who can't afford things in the formal and governmentally approved economy. But most people would say you're talking about black markets, right? How is this different from a black market? The black market implies some kind of illegality. The black economy, you know, and we link it to organized crime or something like that. And this is not what the majority of trade in the street markets and across borders without the knowledge of government, this is not what that trade is all about. We're talking about pretty much legal product just being traded in a way where, let's say I'm a businessman and I don't register with the government and I may or may not pay my full share of taxes. So there's a sort of technical illegality in that people may be avoiding their tax bills, but we're not talking about something nefarious where it's being run by criminal enterprises. What kind of currency goes on there? How is the exchange? What is that like? Do they use informal currencies? Do people trade a lot with each other, favors for one another? What is that like? Well, mostly actually it's dollars. It's a very interesting thing. The dollar is the lingua franca of system D world trade. But other currencies are involved as well. I mean, on the border between Brazil and Paraguay, for instance, you can use dollars, you can use Brazilian reais, you can use Paraguayan guarani or Argentinian pesos. But in the larger picture, if you're a business person who wants to get things made in China and bring it back to Africa, for instance, you have to take your African currency and you have to convert it into dollars and you have to bring those dollars to China and convert them into yuan. So the dollar is actually the most common currency of this kind of global exchange. I think that there's a lot of possibilities for parallel currencies But these trading organizations haven't quite developed them yet. So I think there would be some tremendous possibilities for markets to develop their own kinds of currencies, which can support the trades that go on in that market. But that requires a certain coordination that they haven't achieved yet. People coming into one place together, all all conglomerating these in these favelas, these these shanty towns, and they're bringing with them all these different currencies. And so You're saying that the dollar seems to be the currency that underlies them all. Let me separate things a little bit. I mean, the favelas and shantytowns are one aspect of a kind of, you know, what's loosely called informal settlements by the UN, as squatter communities, I tend to call them. And these communities 
everything that goes on in these communities goes on in their local currency. So in a favela in Rio de Janeiro, people are buying and selling things with Brazilian currency, Brazilian reais. And in a squatter community in Lagos, Nigeria, in Makoko, people are buying and selling things with Nigerian Naira. That's just local trade being done locally. But then there are giant street markets and there are import-export businesses that cater to those giant street markets. And so... If I'm a Brazilian or Nigerian or from anywhere else in the world, a merchant who wants to go to China and buy mobile phones and bring them back to my country, I need to transfer my currency into dollars and bring that to China and transfer it into yuan. So if I'm doing global trade, it's the dollar that's going to be the lingua franca. If it's just local buying and selling, it'll be in that local currency. You were on the ground in a lot of these markets and you had the opportunity to talk to a lot of the people who are part of the System D economy. And I'm wondering what it's like to be one of the vendors, one of the people who are out there selling or who are trading goods across borders. How do they feel about their work? Do they see themselves as someone who's kind of shady on the backside of the law? Or do they see that they are doing something that is good for society because perhaps the society doesn't support what they really are doing to support their families or their communities? Yeah, I'd say it's more the latter. When I first got to Lagos in Nigeria, I was walking around Alaba International Market and I would walk up to merchants and I would say, I'm a writer from New York and I'm writing a book about the informal economy. And without exception, they would get this stricken look on their face of total fear because they had no idea what I was talking about. Because informal economy sounds to them like some sort of horrible thing. And they don't see themselves that way at all. And it was Taiwo Adesanya, who's a guy that I was working with to uh, sort of introduce me to the marketplace, him and his brother. They sort of translated my English into Nigerian English, which is basically just rewording what I had said. And what they would tell the merchants is he's writing a book about businesses that exist solely on their own initiative and with no involvement from the government. And suddenly the merchants would say, yes, that's me, and invite me to sit down and talk. So the merchants see themselves as engaging in this really important right of self-reliance and entrepreneurship. At the same time, they recognize that most governments around the world are engaged in demonizing them. And so they're a little bit loath at times. You know, they don't want to talk with someone who's going to present them in a negative light because governments have been punitive towards System D. Formal versus informal, what's the really difference here? Is it the, GDP that people are measuring here? Yeah, I mean, the, the only difference is that the formal economy is the economy that's reported to the government. And the informal economy is the economy that's not directly reported to the government. So when a woman's selling mangoes on the side of the road, she's not a registered licensed business and she's not reporting that income to the government. And so the government considers her informal. So what you're saying is essentially in the informal economy that all of these people don't necessarily pay taxes or any kinds of like licensing fees or import exactly. fees. Is that really it? Yeah, exactly. That mm -hmm. they Their competitive advantage is that they don't register with the government. They don't get incorporated with the government. They try to avoid import duties 
They justify this, I mean, particularly in places like Nigeria, they justify this because they say the government's corrupt. They said we'd be willing to pay taxes if the government could show us that our tax dollars are doing something good for us. And they also say that everyone's avoiding paying taxes, even the big oil companies, even the multinationals are avoiding paying taxes so that they're not doing anything different than everyone else does. But right now we see how Greece and Spain and their economies are falling apart and mm -hmm. their politicians are under pressure to increase their tax revenues because yes. they're looking for more uh, revenue sources. And so I'm wondering, are they going after their system D uh, economy participants or are these people like kind of a buffer preventing the downfall of the economy from getting even worse? What combination is it? Well, it's a little bit of both. I mean, what's going on in the southern tier of Europe is that governments are trying to up their tax revenues because they overspent. Uh, they basically spent money they didn't have. They went into hock. And they're trying to do that on the backs, uh, in many cases, of System D type businesses. And it's really unfair because the System D businesses didn't tell them to go and overspend. It wasn't like the merchants said, yeah, go to Spain, go and build these airports that have no air traffic and are unnecessary. Or uh, the New York Times wrote recently about a film studio that was built by one provincial government where there was no film industry and no one's ever shot a movie there. It wasn't the businesses that said, go and do that. So they're trying to balance the books on the back of these businesses. The flip side of that is that the more fiscal austerity that is forced down the throat of countries like Greece and Spain and Portugal and potentially Italy, the more the people will be forced to turn to system D because that's the only way they'll be able to survive because there are no jobs in the formally recognized portion of the economy. And what you get is a situation like in Greece where unregistered, informal street recyclers are making more money than people working for uh, companies that are registered and incorporated. So does the government allow these informal economies to officially exist? Are the people there getting, getting any kind of services from their government? I mean, they're getting some services from the government, but you can argue that they're also paying for certain services too. I mean, they are buying things in the legal economy as well. Just because your business may not be regulated doesn't mean you don't go into a grocery to buy a soda and pay the value-added tax. So they are paying some taxes in the purchases that they make. They may be paying taxes based on the rent that they pay in, in an apartment. And in places like Nigeria, where there are no real government services that people are getting in the sense that there's no water supply, there's no public mass transit system, there's, there's very little electricity that's delivered over the public wires, people really feel that they're not getting any benefits from the government. And so are there formal economists who study the sort of thing, the system D economy, because it seems to fall, if not entirely, but largely outside of the general understanding of how economists say that economics works? Yeah, I mean, there are economists who look at it and who attempt to, in a sort of very rough calculation, measure the size of it in various countries. But generally, it's excluded from most economic analyses, and most of the major economists have been loath to touch it because they find it somehow unseemly, even though if you total up all the statistics, I mean, there's a, Friedrich Schneider is an economist in uh, Austria who has made some rough estimates of the size of uh, System D or the informal economy. And if you total up the statistics, we're talking about more than $10 trillion a year 
in trade uh, happening off the books. And that, that's a huge number. It's really the survival economy of the global majority. And the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development has estimated that two-thirds of the workers of the world are working off the books. So this is a really important facet of globalization and of economic growth, but it's largely being ignored by the people who are planning for economic development around the world. I'd really like for you to kind of walk us through what it would be like to be a part of the system, the economy. You know, average Joe guy sitting there on the street, you know, doing his his collection of recycling or, you know, repairing sure. his roof. Or What's it uh, like for him? Is he happy? Does he have a family? Is he getting oh, fed absolutely. well? Okay. I mean, I mean, look, you know, it varies. There are some people who are unhappy. There are some people who are happy. There are some people who have families. There are some people who don't have families the same way that it is in any business. But the average thing is... You put some money together and let's say on a subsistence level, right? I gather what little funds I have and I decide, look, I'm going to go down to the wholesale vegetable market early in the morning. So maybe five o'clock in the morning and I'm going to buy carrots because I think that if I buy carrots at, let's say I'm in Kenya and I'm buying them for five shillings per carrot. I don't know whether that's a logical number or not, but let's say that if I bring them back to my community, let's say I live in a shanty town or squatter community, I can sell them for six shillings per carrot. And so I make one shilling for every carrot I sell. And if I sell enough carrots during the day, that's an income. And so that's one person's informal business. And another person decides, well, this person's going and buying these big sacks of carrots. They can't haul it, but I'm strong. And so I'll meet them at the bus stop and I'll carry their carrots and they'll pay me. And so he waits at the bus stop, and every time someone comes with a big bale of goods, he negotiates how much they're willing to pay him to carry it to where they're going to set up and sell these carrots. And so he's another part of System D, an informal laborer who uh, uses his brawn to carry things. These people put together an income, and that enables them to eat and to help support their families and to maybe even save some money. That's a very low-level example. Then you have people who are making deals for tens of thousands of dollars worth of car parts or mobile phones or T-shirts or whatever might be going to China to get them manufactured or going to other countries to find products in other countries and bring them back to their home country. So it really varies from the tiniest increment of profit for someone who's really impoverished to quite profitable and, and larger enterprises. Now, as you start moving up these food chains, I'm sure you have to m interact more and more with the formal economy. Who kind of sits at the top of this informal economy food chain? Is it a government official? Is it like a organized crime? Well, it's not organized crime as far as I can see. And, and it's not as if some government official is sitting at the top of the food chain. At the top of the food chain are some very big merchants who are engaging in informal global trade. And they may pay off some customs inspectors to look the other way when they bring stuff into the country, or they may be smuggling things across the border without paying government officials, but paying smugglers to bring things across the border. For instance, Nigeria has a very expensive tariff system if you bring things into the ports of Nigeria, but there's almost no tariffs in a neighboring country, Benin. And so many merchants bring their goods into Cotonou in Benin 
where there's almost no customs duties. It's what's called an open port. You can get your goods within 24 hours out of the port. And then they just drive them across the border into Nigeria, whereas it might take them months to get their goods through the port and through all the customs officials if they bring them into the Apapa port in uh, Lagos. So there's all sorts of different ways that this is done. But the top of the food chain is people who've worked their way up, who started out making tiny increments of money and saved their money and became global traders and are trading around the world and bringing goods in all the time, you know, hundreds of containers every day. In the U.S., we like to look at rags to riches stories and really idolize those and honor those. And it sounds in a lot of ways like this really involves a lot of rags to riches stories. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I met many, to use Nigeria as an example again, because I did a lot of my research in Nigeria. I met many Nigerian merchants who have never finished high school, some who never finished primary school, who started out with almost nothing in an apprenticeship system, working as an apprentice for their uncle who are now global traders who deal in major products. And one of my friends, David Ibekwe, he uh, had to quit high school and he became an auto parts dealer. And he does so much trade with China that he actually maintains a pied-à-terre apartment in Guangzhou. So he doesn't have to stay in a hotel. It's cheaper for him to just buy an apartment in Guangzhou, China. And he goes there so many times and he tours the factories and buys his auto parts and commissions companies to make them and imports them back to Lagos, where he sells them in the international trade fair market. And he started out as a very small merchant and now he's a global trader. So this is a rags to riches story that we should think is estimable. He's done amazing things with his life and has traveled around the world. You know, it's a story that should be inspiring and should be part of the economic development of uh, Nigeria. I was watching your TED Talk and you said that these type of places are the cities of the future. It seems to me that these are kind of the cities of the past as well, in that these are the kind of ways or that larger cities have organically kind of risen and organized themselves with, with more government until they became the Western idea of a, maybe a city. Are we going to be moving back to that way of, of organizing people in the future? Is that kind of the way that you see it go? I would say that there's an opportunity here for every region of the world to have its form of economic development and its form of city development. And I don't see the problem with a major street market in the center of uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil. It's been there for more than 100 years on Rua 25 de Marzo, the street of the 25th of March. There's no reason why it shouldn't be an anchor of economic development. Indeed, the market's own statistics, when you go to that street, the market's own statistics show that if it were organized as a single business entity, instead of being 8,000 different stores and ambulatory merchants and street vendors and hawkers, if it was one business, it would be one of the five largest Brazilian-owned businesses in the country. It's huge, right? The amount of trade they do is just amazing. You know, but nonetheless, the government there has been trying to drive it out. And they've actually recently uh, outlawed street vending in Sao Paulo. And I think it's a very counterproductive move. There's nothing that says that this cannot be a form of economic development. And you can have different types of city structures. So not everything has to be totally formalized. 
And, and indeed, we had this for many years in the United States. You know, the pushcart peddlers of the Lower East Side in New York City were mostly independent entrepreneurs who were uh, doing cash-only businesses and didn't report all their income to the government. I mean, the Tenement Museum here in New York documented uh, how important this was for newly arriving immigrants. And it's a part of the economy and a part of our economic history that we sort of lionize as these guys who grew and became big businesses. And Dick Sears, who was one of the founders of Sears Roebuck, started peddling watches. Frederick T. Stanley of Stanley Tools started as a tinker with a pack of tools on a mule. So these are rags to riches stories that we value here in the United States, but we've forgotten that this is how businesses start. And the developing world should recognize that this is a form of business incubator. This is economic development. And you mentioned Brazil and how they have, in some cases, been running and, and shutting down these markets, like running these system D traders and, and markets out. But it seems to me that one of the biggest challenges in the world's economy at the moment is employment crisis and creating jobs. Why do you think that national government policy planners are so willing to close down these markets that employ so many people? That's a really good question. I actually don't know. Because it seems totally counterintuitive and counterproductive to me. I mean, these are places that are job incubators and employment generators. And a merchant who's selling pens on the streets of Sao Paulo at Rua Vinci Cinco de Marzo is a guy who's not committing crimes. You know, he's selling pens and making enough money to feed his family. I really don't understand why politicians and people seem to fear street markets. I mean, a lot of people in Sao Paulo say, oh, Rua Vinci Cinco de Marzo, it's so rough there and, and, and so chaotic. I never found it rough. And it has a certain chaos to it, but that's mostly because there's hundreds of thousands of people buying things every day. It's an outdoor shopping mall, essentially. And there's a lot of energy in that. And so I never found these places rough and I never found the people to be uh, problematic at all. I mean, everyone was welcoming to me and talked with me and was pretty open with me about how they were doing business. So uh, I never found it to be quite so threatening, but governments seem to. And then they use the canard of these people aren't paying taxes to demonize the folks who are on that street. It seems like governments are really being inflexible and not wanting to investigate whether there's a middle ground. Maybe the entire street market could arrange a kind of payment in lieu of taxes kind of agreement where they're paying for their use of the city streets or kind of franchise tax or something like that. I mean, there's all sorts of middle grounds for the government being able to get some revenue out of this while at the same time allowing people to keep their jobs and allowing the market to flourish. And these are people who've put their life savings into selling stuff on the street and who have supported their families and put their kids through school. And they're proud of what they do and they want to keep doing it. So here in the United States, especially where I live in a little bit of a rural part of North Carolina, we have a lot of farmers markets that pop up. And these are kind of informal places where people kind of gather and trade goods, kind of like what you're talking about, these street markets. Are there lessons that we can learn from the System D kind of lifestyle of street market kind of areas and integrate that into a westernized idea of what a street market is? Are these two ideas compatible? Is it very cultural? How do we integrate these kind of ideas from one culture into another? Well, I think it's totally compatible. 
I mean, first of all, swap meets, uh, selling on the street, these are things that are growing in the United States, particularly during the past couple of years that we've faced economic turmoil here and lots of layoffs and job crises. And the idea that the American dream of doing better than your parents and economic growth all the time may be coming to an end. And these kinds of entrepreneurial businesses that start on the street are really important and, and are ways that people can thrive and grow from swap meets to farmers markets to just vendors who are selling what they're good at making on the street. I think these are noble activities and we should encourage them. So just like cities tend to like having farmers markets, we should be encouraging swap meets and other kinds of things as forms of economic growth. And look, they're cash only businesses. So people are going to report what they report, right? I mean, that was one of the funny things when I talked about this is that I did an interview with the Nobel Prize winning economist, Joseph Stiglitz. And he pointed out to me that most small businesses in the United States massaged their income and only reported some of their income to the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, for many, many years until the spread of credit cards became universal. And once credit cards became universal and people were using their credit cards to buy a single cup of coffee in a Starbucks or debit cards, then they had to report it because everything was on the record. But before that, it was an all cash transaction and we relied on businesses to report kind of what they thought they should report. And Joe Stiglitz's words to me were, we shouldn't feel superior to Nigeria because our small businesses did it too. And so I think that we should be honoring cash businesses and figuring out how to have as many people employed as possible. And if that means having these in-between zones where people are running farmers markets and engaging in swap meets and street markets, I think that's a great thing. comes from the theory of moral sentiments and Adam Smith wrote, the prudent man is always sincere and feels horror at the very thought of exposing himself to the disgrace which attends upon the detection of falsehood. But though always sincere, he is not always frank and open. And though he never tells anything but the truth, he does not always think himself bound when not properly called upon to tell the whole truth. So I started the chapter with Chief Arthur O'Coffer never admitted that the products he sold were knockoffs. He did not agree that they were fakes, and he was outraged if anyone ever said that they were counterfeits. He put his hand over his heart as if he were taking an oath. These are real copies, he declared. 
He lounged against the display case in front of one of the kiosks in the Guangzhou Dashato Secondhand Trade Center. The evidence of the deal he had just made was spread in a 360-degree pattern around him. Precisely folded cardboard boxes, geometrically shaped shards of styrofoam, dozens of small plastic bags, rolls of packing tape, and a series of large styrofoam coolers. They might have been carrying wild salmon embalmed in freezer tape. It was Friday afternoon. He was due to head back to Lagos in less than 24 hours. Do you know how much money I came here with, he asked. $40,000, he paused. And do you know how much I'm going home with? He smiled, raised his arms, and fluttered his fingers in the air as if he were releasing fairy dust. In his unwavering refusal to acknowledge the obvious, Chief Arthur was expressing an old mercantile truth. Piracy has been a normal business practice for a very long time. This was pointed out more than a century ago by the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. The brigand and the man of power who promises to defend a community against the brigand are probably at bottom very similar beings, Nietzsche wrote in 1880, except the latter obtains what he wants in a different way from the former, namely through regular tributes paid to him by the community and not by imposts levied by force. It is the same relationship as that between merchant and pirate, who are for a long time one and the same person, where one function does not seem to him advisable, he practices the other. Even now, indeed, merchant's morality is really a more prudent form of pirate's morality, to buy as cheap as possible, where possible, for no more than the operational costs, and to sell as dear as possible. There's a long history to back this up. Sir Francis Drake, who circumnavigated the globe from 1577 to 1580 and helped lead the British Navy when it defeated the vastly superior Spanish Armada in 1588, made three major voyages across the Atlantic. On each of them, his purposes were largely the same, to pilfer cargo from Spanish traders and to pillage the port city Spain had established to handle its trade. And on each journey, the sailors who staffed his vessels were the same type of men, sometimes indeed the same men. Yet only one of his voyages to the New World was a legal trading mission. The other two times Drake sailed across the Atlantic, he was a pirate. What was the difference between his pirate ventures and his official voyage? A piece of paper signed by the Queen. In his rakish lexicon, The Devil's Dictionary, the cynical American writer Ambrose Bierce caught the absurdity of this when he defined piracy as, quote, commerce without its folly swaddles, just as God made it. To be sure, Chief Arthur didn't attempt to pillage the market where he made his purchases or to seize his mobile phones by force. But that thin sliver of difference between legal trade and illegal marked everything Chief Arthur did. He didn't have any official paperwork permitting him to buy things in the market. He had traveled to Guangzhou on a tourist visa. He was buying unlicensed copies of legal phones and planning to sneak them back into Lagos. He didn't engage in the violence Drake used to achieve his goals. Chief Arthur was definitely a pirate. But in every other way, he was doing the same thing all merchants do, making a deal.
You're listening to episode number 50 of The Extra Environmentalist. And today we're speaking with Robert Newworth about the stealth of nations. I woke last night to the sound of thunder. How far off I sat and wondered. Started humming a song from 1962. In a funny how the night moves. When you just don't seem to have as much to lose. Strange how the night moves With autumn closing in when you started researching the system D economy, what was it that really caught you off guard, that really surprised you? Well, actually, it was the world trade. I mean, I was totally unprepared for the scale of the number of Africans that I found in China. I had no idea that there was global trade going on sub Rosa under the radar of governments. And when I got to Guangzhou and I started walking around and I got to Xiaobei Lu, which is a, a street there, and then to uh, San Yuan Li, which is a whole neighborhood, and discovered that there are these neighborhoods that are basically dominated by African traders in Guangzhou who overstay their tourist visas and are there to basically either turn their own trades or guide other Africans who come there to do business in how to do business in China. And we're talking about, I mean, the official statistic from the Chinese government is that there's about 30,000 Africans in Guangzhou, but I've seen numbers as high as three or 400,000. There's no accurate census of it, but it's a thriving, thriving global business. China is the world's manufacturing magnet. The Chinese government has essentially understood that they have to allow this to go on, that as the global economic crisis killed demand in the United States and Europe, the factories in China needed, I mean, thousands of factories just closed outright, but the manufacturing sector needed other markets. And one of those really important markets is Africa and South America and the Middle East. And they needed to still be producing products at a price point that those places could purchase. And so the Chinese government unofficially has been allowing this to go on because they've recognized that it's really important economically. It's a huge part of their trade with the rest of the world. So you could say that our price points in Walmart here might be driven by an informal system D style market in another part of the world. Well, that's tricky, right? I mean, I think the price points in Walmart here are driven by what Walmart thinks it can get. But I think what's interesting to think about is the profits for the companies that do business with Walmart. And the example I'll use is Procter & Gamble. And I talk about this in the book. Procter & Gamble is, I think, the world's largest consumer goods company. And it's based in Cincinnati. And it's the definition of a formal firm, right? Nothing system D about it. And their largest customer as a single customer is Walmart. They do about 15% of their business with Walmart, but there's no growth in it. Walmart's business with Procter & Gamble is pretty much flat. They love it. It's 15% of their, their receipts, but there's no growth in it. Their big growth sector is what they call high frequency stores in the developing world. And it turns out that in aggregate, they do more business with the high frequency stores in the developing world than they do with Walmart. It's 20% of their business and it's growing fast. Now, what are high frequency stores? Procter & Gamble defines them as stores with three cash registers or fewer. 
So a lot of those high frequency stores are stores in the favelas and the street markets and street hawkers all around the world. And Procter and Gamble did some market research and they discovered something that was really interesting from their point of view, which was that you know, the average Walmart customer, how many times do you go to Walmart in a month? You probably go once a month and you stock up on these giant boxes of downy fabric softener or Tide detergent. The customers go into the high frequency stores, go every day, and they buy a single sachet of downy fabric softener because that's all they can afford. So from a marketing point of view, this is an opportunity for what Procter & Gamble and all the other, what would be called in the marketing textbooks, relationship marketing. You can create a great relationship with your customer because that customer is at that store every day. So Procter & Gamble looked at this and said, well, we have to get our products in all these unlicensed, unregistered, potentially untaxpaying stores all around the world. And so what they do basically is they hire a local distributor in each country or maybe in each city who can do business with these people. And it's definitely part of their business plan. As they put it to me, we don't care the rules about legality in the country. We want our products in those stores. So Procter & Gamble is really targeting the small stores all around the world and the small entrepreneurial business people all around the world as their key market for growth in the 21st century. And so they just release their products that they're making and they don't really care how it ends up making it to the end consumer. They're just finding larger suppliers who kind of distribute it out through these system D methods. Yeah. And they're willing to work with the system D store owners if that's a possibility, if the guy actually has a store. So they will, through distributors and sub-distributors, work with store owners to have specials or give out Procter & Gamble backpacks to repeat customers or paint the store with a Procter & Gamble logo. So they actually have programs to work with these people and improve the business relationship because they see the value in this relationship marketing. And they also know that if they can penetrate into the really small stores in rural areas or satellite cities, the trend in the world is that people are migrating to the cities. And so folks who start buying Procter & Gamble stuff in the rural area are going to be buying it when they get to the city too. And so they see this as a, a real value-added kind of approach to doing business. These stores in these rural, remote locations probably don't look like your average big box Walmart store. What are these stores? No, I mean, it's a room in a guy's house with a window cut in it where you can go up and buy your stuff often. Or it's a little thatched roof kiosk at the side of the road with some boards put out where you can display the different products. So it's you know, much more primitive than Walmart. But Procter & Gamble does 20% of its business with these high-frequency stores. So a little kid can go to this one-room store and buy himself, you know, like a half ounce of Coca-Cola, and he can be living the life that every American lives in, on the other side of the world. And he can drink his little bit of Coca-Cola and dream about being on the other side of the world, right? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And look, people do. I mean, the popular drink, when I was in Kenya and I was living in Kibera, the popular drink that everyone would get me, you know, I would drop in on their house to talk with them. We'd sit in their little hut and they'd send the kid out to buy Fanta, right? Fanta. You know, that's produced by one of these companies. So they, they use these products. Absolutely. 
brand represents to them exactly what the brand represents to us. Coca-Cola is standardized and you know it will taste like Coca-Cola every time you buy it. So people buy it. And yes, those kids who can buy that small serving of Coca-Cola are participating in that way in their own version of the American dream. That's wild. It's what's really interesting is we talked in our one of our last episodes about community currencies and how businesses really want to be thought of as marketing towards the higher end in the society, marketing to richer people. But what you're saying is that there's huge avenues for growth that exist in these informal markets and for really, really poor people. Well, yeah. I mean, look, we've known this forever. The bottom of the pyramid is is hugely valuable. And look, it's old-fashioned business stuff, right? You can market to high-end people and sell very few products at a really high price, right? Or you can market to very low-income people and sell lots of products at a really low price. But the interesting thing for consumer goods companies like Procter & Gamble is, of course, that the profit margin, the markup on a single serving sachet of Downy or Tide or uh, toothpaste, Crest, is much higher than if you buy in bulk. So they're actually making a higher profit margin off of selling to the poorer people. And that may sound reprehensible, but that's what goes on. You know, and you can see it when, for me in New York City, well, it used to be this way. It isn't this way anymore, right? But you buy one beer, it's one price. You buy six beers, you get a discount. And when you buy a six pack, you get a discount. When you buy a case, you get an even bigger discount. So it's just the same kind of principle, but applied to the developing world. As you mentioned before, you did a lot of the research for the book in Nigeria And your descriptions of Nigeria are really fascinating for someone like me who lives in Canada, you know, very first world nation, very, you know, clean streets, overly clean streets sometimes Mm -hmm. and overly unchaotic, like almost boring compared to what your descriptions of Nigeria are. But what was it like to get off that airplane into Nigeria and start going through some of these street markets? What really struck you about the street life there? Well, I mean, it's totally disorienting at first, right? Like you, you know, I grew up in New York, so I come from a fairly formal environment. Although, certainly, I remember, you know, New York back in the day when it was a bit more anything goes than it is today. It's extraordinarily vibrant. And at first, I just had no clue what was going on because there's so much going on all the time. There's just so much happening. You're, it's like this 360 degree experience of everything happening all at once and all happening on the street. I was completely disoriented. I had no idea where I was. I had no idea whether I had been to a place before. I didn't recognize anything. And then you begin sorting it out and you begin seeing the patterns in it and understanding the different marketplaces that you're going to and why they developed, where they developed and how they developed. And you begin recognizing who's selling what and why they're selling it. But it's always just hyper entrepreneurial, hyper exchange based. And it's all about communication and exchange and talk. And it's really amazing. Just the experience of like, you know, you walk through the market and as an outsider, I'm, I'm not an African and I'm a white guy. And it's very seldom that there are non-Africans who come to these street markets. And so walking through, people really notice you. 
And in Nigeria, what they do is they start grabbing your arm, trying to steer you to one of the kiosks to talk with you. Or they start shouting, Nyocha, Nyocha, which is Igbo for white man. Or Oyibo, Oyibo, which is uh, Yoruba for white man. And you have to realize at a certain point that there's nothing challenging or horrific in that salutation. You're the white guy. And they're just trying to get your attention. They don't know your name. They're not coming up to you to say, excuse me, sir. They're just doing what they know how to do. And basically, when everyone was calling me white man, or sometimes based on an advertisement, they were calling me orange man, because there was an orange juice advertisement, which had three guys with shaved heads, and I have a shaved head. So they thought I looked like the orange man. Um, (laughs) And it was all sort of just curiosity. They wanted to talk with me and find out what I was doing in their marketplace. Either they could do business with me. Or they could find out what was going on. And they were just curious. And this was their way of talking with me. And so I had to learn that being called white man wasn't such a bad thing. It was okay. And then I would have tremendous conversations with people. And by and large, people were totally open about what they were doing and how long the market had been there and what the market cost, whether they paid rent or not, and whether they paid off the local government or not. So then it just became a series of conversations that I had with people and friendships that I developed with people. And that was great. So it was really just about being flexible enough to talk with people. When I did my first book and I was in the squatter communities, it was a little bit different because I was going into people's homes. And mostly when I was going into people's homes, I was the first outsider who had been there because there aren't a lot of outsiders who go to these communities. And so then I had to do a lot of uh, what I call tuning up, which would mean, take the example of Kibera in Kenya. I would go with my friend uh, Nicodemus, who lived in Kibera, and he would bring me to someone's house, and we would basically have to sit quiet for about 10 or 15 minutes while he would chat with the person. And they would have to get used to the idea that I was comfortable in their house, that we were just having a conversation, that I wasn't judging them. Because look, in in that community, they're living in mud huts with no running water and no toilets and no utilities and no sanitation. They wanted to know that I was there with them. And once they could figure out that, like, okay, I wasn't judging them, I was comfortable, we were all comfortable, we were all friends here, then Nicodemus would turn to me and he would say, now you can ask anything you want. And I would say, anything? And he would say, absolutely, you can ask anything, because now everyone's comfortable. And so when I visit people's homes, it was more about waiting and showing respect. Because if I went in gangbusters, like the typical journalistic press conference here with the flashbulbs bursting and reporters shouting, so uh, when did you move? It wouldn't have worked. They would probably kick you out real fast. Yeah, they would have said this guy's impolite. He's really annoying. He, I would have violated the terms. These are people's homes and uh, they deserve to be treated with dignity. People are not the material conditions that they're forced to live in. Everyone knows what a toilet is. They're just forced by economic circumstances to live without one because housing with toilets is too expensive. Similarly, the folks in the street markets or a guy who's a street hawker in the middle of traffic, that's his job. And it deserves to be treated with dignity. It's his work. And some guys are really good at it. And they work really hard. That's the other thing about the people in the street market. It's hard work. You have to put in the hours. And a street hawker has to work really hard. And so you have to respect that. 
you make some very key points here. And, and one of the things I really liked what you said is that everybody, no matter where they come from, no matter what language they speak or what color they are, everyone has the same dreams and same aspirations. They want to be happy about their life and they want love and they want good things for their children. I'm wondering what the role of education is in these communities. Do, do people go to school? Is there a formalized education system? I'm, I, I say formalized in an informal market. Do these kids dream of going to college? Do they dream of becoming big businessmen? What, what are their educational aspirations like? Well, it varies, but kids want to go to school and they want to learn. Unfortunately, in many countries, the opportunities are not provided for them to do that. Also, they want to better themselves economically and they want to use their abilities to do that. In certain countries like Nigeria, everyone wants to be their own boss, which is admirable, actually. And it's, it's a real sort of cultural thing in Nigeria that they don't want to be assembly line workers. They want to work for themselves. They see that as the honorable way to be the entrepreneur, the risk taker. Public education is not always provided in every country. So in the shanty towns and squatter communities, it varies country by country. Other kids have access to school. In Kenya, when I was there, and this is going back 10 years ago now, when I was living in Kibera, the newly elected Kibaki government at that time, there had been a dictator named Daniel Arap Moy, and he gave up power. And perhaps his greatest gift to Kenya was to go peacefully. And why Kibaki was elected. And one of the first things the Kibaki government did was offer free universal primary education. And it's not entirely free because actually you have to buy school uniforms and school books and often have to pay certain fees to the teachers. But at least in principle, it's offered to the kids. But there are also mess loads of informal schools throughout the squatter communities of Nairobi. So people pay for education and they see that as a value for their kids and they definitely want it. Some of the informally organized schools were very good. Some of the informally organized schools were very bad and were just basically warehousing hundreds and hundreds of kids without any conditions conducive to learning. You know, schools were a business, unfortunately, those, those informal schools. So people are making profits. But everyone wants their kids to be educated and the kids, by and large, want to be educated. In Brazil... You have public schools. In Rio, there are some public schools within the favelas, in certain favelas. The architect Oscar Niemeyer designed a prototype school, which then the government built all over the place, and they all look the same. And so kids can go to public school. The problem in Brazil is that to get higher education, to go to the good public universities that are free, you need to pass an exam called the vestibular. And the vestibular is a very difficult exam. And in order to pass the vestibular, you basically have to send your kids to private school so that they get the appropriate education so they will be able to take and pass the vestibular and go to free public high quality university. If you go to public primary and secondary school, you might not pass the vestibular and then you have to pay to go to university. So it's a very bizarre system where the rich have access to free university and the poor have to pay to go to university. 
And how it developed that way and why it developed that way, well, I guess, you know, because it benefited some people. But there is primary and secondary education for poor kids in Brazil. It's just they may not be able to go on to university. So we've been talking a lot about how the System D economy plays out in the developing world. But let's take the next little bit here to talk about how the System D economy is playing a role in the developed world and also how it could play an even better role in helping to solve some of the economic issues we're facing. In your descriptions of the system D economy, it seems to me like it's often the description of free market economics that a lot of people, perhaps on the more right-leaning political spectrum, describe and, and really want. Is this really libertarianism in action in some ways? I mean, would Ron Paul endorse this? Well, yes and no. On the one hand, sure. This is libertarianism 101, the freedom to go out and do work, right? And that in some way is true, okay? But look, we need regulation of businesses. That's certainly true. And we just have to work out what regulations make sense. So for instance, in New York, if I'm a good cook and let's say I make pasta sauces, I can invite my friends over with no license and cook them dinner, but I can't prepare the food in my kitchen and go out and sell it. You're not allowed to use a private kitchen as a commercial kitchen for a business. I would have to get a vendor's license to sell on the street, and I would have to get my home kitchen licensed and inspected by the health department. I'm not sure that that kind of regulation makes sense. We want our food to be safe but the government's not policing me if I cook for my friends at home or even for myself at home. So I, I think that there are ways in which our licensing requirements and our government requirements are too much. And then there are places where I think the regulations actually have to be made stronger. But I do think, for instance, regulating financial transactions and the kinds of collateralized debt obligations that got us into the mess we're in starting in 2008. So it's not a perfect libertarian picture, and I'm not a free market capitalist by any means. I don't believe that there is an invisible hand. I think it's a wonderful fiction that there's an invisible hand, but there ain't. It's like the Marx Brothers said, there ain't no sanity clause, there ain't no invisible hand. And, you know, the market, it does not regulate itself that way. But for startup businesses, we do need some ways that people can start businesses easier, maybe on the street. And that might be a kind of libertarian approach to business development and, and city planning, but I wouldn't get rid of all regulation. Now, it seems in a country like the United States that would seem adverse to letting these kind of regulations that they've built for so long be diminished by these sort of system D like uh, examples that you've been giving that a trend towards greater contraction in the world would put pressure on these existing systems to adopt some of these sort of system D methodologies. Mm. Could you see a, a country like the United States adopting these sort of system D like thought processes as they're no longer effectual in enforcing their policies and their laws? They can't really enforce things as well as they used to? Absolutely. I mean, I would hope that would happen. But I do see governments being kind of punitive towards it. I mean, there was a, a foodie movement in San Francisco that started out 
unlicensed. And some of the people who were doing some really cool things with food vending got into trouble for not being licensed or for not having the right push cart, even though state regulations and municipal regulations were totally contradictory. So you could meet the city regulations, but not meet the state regulations and still be put out of business. So I see places being somewhat punitive. It's problematic. An example I use in the book is like, if you're producing something in your home kitchen, the the example I use is olive oil cake that this uh, woman bakes and she sells it to high-end coffee bars. No one's gotten into trouble there. She's been written about, everyone knows she's producing it in her apartment, but she doesn't get into any trouble because she's not selling it on the street. She's wholesaling it to a high-end coffee bar that's retailing it. But vendors that sell on the street are vulnerable because they're right there and the cops can come and find them and the sanitation department can give them tickets. And so there's all sorts of ways in which a business catering to a more upwardly mobile clientele can get away with this because it's not exactly street retail. Whereas the woman down the block from me who sells tamales has to watch out. And I think that's really unfortunate. I think government should be allowing both things. I don't think either of these things is wrong. One of the biggest problems with the global economy at the moment is that the velocity of money is slowing so greatly that all Mm -hmm. the transactions that the money facilitates are are really starting to cause some problems. And I was just looking at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis uh, Economic Data Center today, and the velocity of money in the U.S. is actually at its lowest point that has been since the late 50s. That's becoming a really big issue. How could System D help to overcome some of the problems uh, with money turnover and money moving between places? System D is all based on the aggregation of small trades. And so it definitely gets money moving more, which would mean that the velocity of money would go up. It's based on consumption, if you will, not in the big picture of we have to consume greater and greater quantities of the earth or you misuse and use up finite resources, but rather just buying and selling products in a very energized way. And so I do think that street markets, swap meets, all those kinds of places are examples of high velocity money usage. If there were more of them and if they were encouraged in the United States, the velocity of money would go up. I traveled with some Canadian friends recently, and they said that they understood why so many Americans don't want to pay taxes, because in the U.S., people get so little out of their taxes relative to some people in in many other developed countries. Do you see that more people are going to shift to the System D economy as they see frustration with their governments? Are you seeing this in countries like Spain and Greece that are facing a lot of turmoil right now? If the official unemployment rate in Spain for young people entering the workforce is 25%, or maybe even, I I think it's higher, I think the the overall unemployment rate is 25%, and the unemployment rate for young people may be over 50%, some of those people are working off the books. And most of the research about System D shows that in developed countries, it's counter-cyclical. When the economy goes bust, System D goes up. And when the economy is providing more jobs and growing, system D reduces. So I definitely expect, I mean, I haven't been to Spain or Greece recently, 
But I definitely expect that there's more and more off the books economic activity in both those countries. And particularly because with the cutbacks in public services, you're getting less for your tax dollars. So why should you pay taxes? So it, it really acts as like a buffer to any kind of economic collapse is what you're saying. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is the economy of survival. For those of us in the West, this is how people survive in tough economic times. I mean, it's hard work. You know, no one chooses. Well, some people do. Right. But you talk with people who sell things on the street. It's hard, hard, hard work. And you have to put in a lot of hours to really make it work. And there's a lot of risk involved. This is the economy of survival that people do when they really have to do it. But then it becomes part of them. And if they can grow with it, then that's great. One thing that I was thinking about as you're talking about all these informal economies is how do the policing systems work here? If somebody rips you off, who do you go to and say, this guy is wrong? Are there courts systems? Absolutely. One of the interesting things about most of the markets around the world is that they have their own informal justice system. Um, basically, it's run by the Market Association, which is a popularly elected body that basically manages the market. And they'll set up, you know, it has varying names in varying places, but there'll be a tribunal that will convene to hear cases where buyers and sellers have disagreements. You know, he sold me a TV that doesn't work. And mostly what they do is arbitrate. And in some cases, you can appeal the arbitration to courts and actually go to official courts. In other cases, you can't. But the idea is that they're trying to recognize that, sure, there's commercial disputes all the time and that we should have a mechanism for uh, taking care of them and that it doesn't have to be government run. It's a mechanism that we create and run it ourselves. So who would run one of these, these justice systems? Well, I mean, the market association appoints members to a market court and the market court meets, convenes twice a week, several times a week, every day, depending on how much is necessary to hear testimony and make decisions. And this is an ancient tradition, actually. I mean, by British law, going back to the 1300s, every market in the UK had to have uh, what was called a pie powder court. And pie powder courts were supposed to render justice within minutes or hours and always shorter than 24 hours. There were market managers in ancient Greece. There were market courts in medieval London. This is a tradition that continues to this day. So that if I buy something in the Lava International Market in Lagos, and that's mostly in the electronics market. So if I buy a flat screen TV and it doesn't work, I can bring it back and take the merchant to this market court. And if he doesn't give me my money back, I can bring him to the court and, and have the community to decide what the solution should be. I was wondering about the municipal financial crisis that's going on in the U.S. right now. There's been quite a few cities that have gone bust. And I saw recently Scranton, Pennsylvania, they're paying their police and firefighters and their mayor minimum wage, seven twenty-five an hour. As cities are looking at these bleak ledgers for their financial resources, could they start using a System D approach to manage some of their local municipal services like garbage collection or something? It certainly could happen. It'll, it'll be organized differently. It'll be much more small scale and entrepreneurial. But for instance, there's nothing that says that people in the community can't get together and hire someone to collect the garbage. And maybe that person will do it cheaper than the sanitation department. I'm all for having an organized sanitation department. 
and having an organized police force and so forth. But if the city can't manage that and doesn't have the money for it, then it's possible that people could do it as a, a sort of a system D kind of private business. But it would mostly be handled not on a citywide basis, but on a street by street or block by block or neighborhood by neighborhood basis. So one guy with a dump truck would come by and pick up your trash. Maybe it's even just a guy with a wagon and a tractor or a guy pushing a push cart. It depends what you need and how often you need it. But that could definitely happen. So what have been the biggest criticism that you've gotten from your book? I'm overly rosy about it. And, you know, these people don't pay taxes. And isn't it a kind of self-exploitation? I mean, in both my books, you know, people consider, oh, the squatters are living in terrible conditions. And they are. Why should anyone have to work selling things as a hawker on the street? It's dangerous work. So I certainly get some guff about being overly rosy about the situation. My argument is a pragmatic one, right? I'm not saying that there's any beauty to people living without water or sewers or sanitation or in a mud hut in the 21st century. I'm only saying no one's building housing that people can afford. So people are going to build it for themselves. And when they build it for themselves, they're going to make it better over time. So it's going to start out pretty crude and get better over time as they have the money to invest in their home. That's their mortgage. They can't get a bank mortgage. And similarly, if we really want street markets and people working in street markets to grow, then maybe governments and banks have to look at being more like small-scale venture capitalists, putting money into these kinds of businesses, not as a bank loan, but as a kind of piece of venture capital that they're going to get money back over the long haul. And that would be a way of growing these markets and making them improve. I do think the squatter communities and the markets themselves have to self-organize to make themselves better and improve themselves so that they can show the kinds of scale and business development and improvement that will make them more permanent. I'm certainly not arguing that we should just leave things alone. I'm arguing that we should be more creative in how we approach these things that aren't going to go away. Squatter communities are not going to go away because no one's building housing that people can afford. And street markets aren't going to go away. They may be pushed further out of downtown because Sao Paulo, Brazil wants to clean up downtown because the World Cup and the Olympics are coming to Brazil. But they're still going to exist somewhere. And we need to be working with these places. So I think the criticism is that I'm a looking through rose-colored glasses, and I don't think I am. I think I'm just being an extreme pragmatist. What really does the informal economy, what does the System D economy say about how we define ourselves as a species? And do you think that this is the new pathway forward for a lot of people in achieving what they've visualized as the American dream for so long? Well, I mean, I definitely see that. What does it say about ourselves as human beings? Well, trade and exchange are really important facets of what it means to be human. Markets exist. And I, I think we have to recognize that. And, and I don't mean the free market, but I mean markets, places that people buy and sell and exchange and talk. And throughout human history, whether it was at the city gate or in front of the church or in the street or in the mall, these things have all existed. And so it says that there's something really important about that kind of exchange. 
bartering and talking and working with each other. The market is kind of cooperative, if you will. And if we view it more that way, then I think we're making something social and incredibly human better. And so if we viewed all these markets and street markets and swap meets and farmers markets as the potential for cooperative development, where we can all benefit buyers and sellers, then I do think that that is a platform for achieving a more humane kind of economic development in the 21st century. And that closes out our interview with Robert Newworth talking about his book, The Stealth of Nations and the Global Informal Economy, the Global System D Economy, as he calls it. And to help us talk about the global economy as it really works, not how we're told it works, we have with us Simon Black from SovereignMan.com. Simon travels the world and reports on the economies in places that you typically don't hear about. And so we're here to get some of his perspective on on these issues. And so, Simon, you've been traveling the world um, and looking at all of these places, seeing the state of the global economy in a way that few economists or journalists really can What's your take on how the global economy is really doing? It's a really great question about the global economy. It's like what they say about real estate. They say real estate is always local, right? Very, very local. And so it's the same with economy as a whole. I spent the last several months, I was all over the place. I mean, I was probably on uh, four continents and 35 countries over the last couple of months. And in some places, it's really, really bad. Um, I was in Italy. I was in Portugal. I mean, it was just I had not seen that kind of devastation in a really, really long time, particularly in the West. And then I went down to other places where, uh, like Namibia, or Mauritius, or where I am right now in Chile, where there's just a lot of cause for optimism. It's just, you know, these places are really good news stories. There's a lot of really great things happening in this part of the world. And so it's sort of a mixed bag. Frankly, the place, it's, it's, it's no big secret, the places that have kind of pinned their hopes on, you know, more debt and more printing and things like that aren't doing very well. And the places that are more economically free are doing much, much better. I really want to get into those places because you've, you've been to a lot of, a lot of interesting places that have experienced a lot of really tough times. But I first want to get a little bit of background. How you could describe yourself as a permanent traveler. Can you tell us what, a little bit what that means and how you get the opportunity to do that? Yeah, sure. sure. It's uh, basically means that I have no fixed home. So in any given year, I'll, I'll travel to 40, 50, 60 countries. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm constantly moving around, going to various different places. And I do that for a reason because I have a lot of different interests all over the world. Um, you know, I, I, I own some different businesses and I'm, and I'm always looking for really great opportunities. And so I have a lot of reason to travel and it just suits me. It suits my lifestyle. 
for a lot of people, uh, I mean, I, I'm not married. I don't have children. And so it's, it's a lot easier for me. I basically have one suitcase and I travel all over the world like that. For some people, it, it, it sounds like a really difficult lifestyle. For some, it sounds like a dream. Um, so it just, you know, depends on your constitution, I guess. But uh, yeah, it suits me just fine. So I'm, I'm always traveling. In many cases, I might spend only a week in a place and then move on somewhere else. And uh, so I do get the opportunity to go around to a lot of different places. So did this start as like a study abroad trip and it just evolved into a career? No, actually, um, the, the short version of the story is uh, some years ago, I was in the military and I spent most of my military career overseas. And at the time, I, uh, I actually had a pretty successful business on the side. And by the time I got out of the military, I went back to the United States where I where I was from originally. And, you know, it just didn't really feel right anymore being back in the U.S. And so I kind of headed back overseas and, and I never looked back. I kept traveling and traveling and traveling everywhere I went. I just kept finding interesting things to do, interesting businesses, interesting people, interesting investments. And uh, I, I looked back and that was, that was uh, several years ago now. It's kind of hard to go around the world and then come back into the United States because of the way that the culture operates. What was it like to go back into the U.S. after you traveled so much? I don't go back to the U.S. very much. I don't even like saying back because it makes it sound like that's home. And, it, and it's not really. It just happens to be where I grew up. You know, it's a nice place for me to visit. I enjoy it just like I enjoy a lot of countries. Um, and I have a lot of family and friends there. But I don't go very often. And so the the analogy that I make is it's like, you know, if you have like a niece or nephew, maybe that you don't see very often and you see them when they're like three years old and then you see them again when they're like four and a half and you look and you go, oh my God, look at how big you've gotten. You can't believe how much they've changed in that year and a half that you haven't seen them. And it's the same way, you know, for me when I come back into the States because I'm, I'm not there living it. Just like parents might not notice the day-to-day -day subtle changes in their children, but somebody who who hasn't seen the kid for a year and a half or two years is going to notice it right off the bat. People that are living there might not notice the subtle day-to-day -day changes, but for me, those changes are very acutely felt as soon as I you know, set foot off the plane. And so there are really a lot of things that, that I notice. I see a lot of you know, degradation uh, economically, loss of opportunity, just a total change in the sort of the, the spirit, the vibe, the culture, a lot of things that uh, you know, just seem almost foreign now. One concept that we always come back to on our show is that from Jared Diamond in his book Collapse on Creeping Normalcy. And it's really hard for people who are part of a culture that's slowly unwinding, slowly uh, grinding down to really notice those changes in their day-to-day -day life because they're embedded in it. And so could you talk a little bit about the observations that you have when you're in the United States on how it's changed since you grew up there? Yeah, well, the, the one of the things that's probably most disturbing um, is – this the this continual rise of the police state and it really really bothers me and I remember you know I was driving down the street in Santa Monica and I saw this tank um, this was just a couple of months ago and I just saw this tank in Santa Barbara and it was you know painted sort of that urban you know police color as if like they're in Kandahar or something like that I'm like give me a break this is Santa Monica I mean there's checkpoints set up everywhere I mean it's like you just can't do anything without some, you know, and this is the way that they've changed the uniforms. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, you know, police, they used to wear this kind of light blue or maybe dark blue and they had the, you know, the shiny plastic shoes and, and you know, the, the belt buckles and stuff. And now every single one of these guys dresses like paramilitaries and they have combat boots and all black and black vests and bulletproof and all this stuff. And it's like, 
they're really they're dressed for combat and it's just subtle changes like that you know you think okay you change a uniform big deal but to me it's it, it actually makes a big difference when you come in and you see that it's almost like a militarization of the police and it's really quite actually a disturbing trend so both justin and i have traveled a bit justin's living in canada right now used to live in the united states a bit of an expat uh, I travel as much as I possibly can, and when I when I come back, I always tell people, you know, I know you don't like to use that word, but when I come back to the United States, I always tell people that traveling kind of makes that the edges of your your square kind of go away. You become a circle, and you try to fit yourself back into that square of home. Um, what what do you think travel has taught you? What's the biggest lesson it has taught you in your life? Oh, that's easy. I'll tell you. Is for me, it's that I've learned. I learned very quickly that fundamentally we're all the same. Human beings, we're no different. Or the color of our skin, the color of our passport, it doesn't really matter. Everybody does what they do. We get up in the morning, you know, we we go to work, we we do whatever it is we have to do. We get through the day so we can come back home at night and do the things that we love to do. Play with our kids or you know, go drinking with our buddies or chase around women or you know, watch movies or talk on the phone to our parents or whatever it is that, you know, people do. We're all the same in that. We all, you know, we all want to love and laugh and, you know, be happy and do things that we enjoy. And, and no matter where you go in the world, that's really fundamentally what it's all about. And that's, it sounds simplistic, but when you kind of experience it on the ground, it's, it actually does, it is quite affecting. So we've been getting lots of reports about uh, riots all over Europe in Spain and Greece what was it like in these European countries on the ground? Was it scary? Were you were you worried for your safety? No, it wasn't really. It wasn't really a question of that. It was actually really depressing. As you go to these places, I remember being in Portugal, and you know, every everybody in these places, they're they're all living. There's so many people now that are living together because you know everybody's been booted out of their house and. You know, I mean, you see, you see a real substantial rise in homelessness and things like that. It's not necessarily a huge rise in something like violent crime, but a lot of petty crime. You know, you see, I mean, people who just ab- so desperate, they're willing to do absolutely anything, you know, for money. And in, in this case, these are people that you know once were, you know, were quite proud. They had jobs, they had technical skills, you know, whatever the case, and they just can't, you know, make it happen anymore. Italy, frankly, was actually further along in many instances uh, we had a an event with our firm and and we had um we rented out a, a actually a very lovely villa in the umbrian wine country and i remember you know it's one of these things they just everybody they wanted to be paid in cash for everything everything had to be in cash and there are a number of reasons behind that one was because and i said well it's really difficult for me to have cash i don't have a bank account here and i have to wire it to you well, they have capital controls in Italy now where they have restrictions on how much you can actually withdraw from your own bank. I mean, this is your money and your bank won't let you take your money because the government has basically imposed these capital controls. And so it's created this whole you know, underground economy where people are dealing in cash. And of course, now the government's come and said that dealing in cash over a certain amount, it's a trivial amount, is now illegal. You know, So I mean, it's like the trend is that these governments come along and they spend an obscene amount of money and they go into debt and they print their way into oblivion. And then when things really, you know, the, when the wheels come off the bus, then they just go and make things worse. You know, they try and dominate everything. They try and impose every sort of control possible. They have in Italy now, I mean, they've imposed 
I mean, Italy's part of the Schengen area, just like Switzerland. This is the borderless area uh, in Europe now. There's there's de facto border controls now, um, where you have all these you know Italian cops running around stopping cars. And you know what? They're not looking for drugs or, or or anything like that. They're looking for money. They're looking for cash. You know, I mean, it's such a bizarre thing now where cash, money, has now become this uh, illicit commodity. You know, as if you're smuggling narcotics or something. It's so crazy. And this is the kind of stuff that I'm seeing in these bankrupt countries. The crime, you know, was the next step, really. I mean, you get to a point where people get so desperate. Uh, and I mean, there have been rises in crime, mostly where the the social unrest, the civil disturbances have been in the form of political protests and riots and those sorts of things. But it gets to a certain point where people will, you know, and do turn on society itself. I always hear I'm here in Canada and Seth is in the U.S. And so we're always hearing updates about the euro crisis. We were both going to different parts of Europe to see some parts of how it's been breaking down over there and how the euro crisis has been playing out. But it's been a year since we've been there. And so I'm wondering first on how fast you've heard from talking to people there that this society has really changed. And then what is it that we're not hearing about the euro crisis in North America? How how bad really is it? You were talking about the changes in capital controls. Um, that's just one thing. But what were some other signs that you saw? Um, well, I mean, the, like I said, one of the biggest things was, was just how cash itself seemingly has been criminalized. Um, the border control issue is something that is shocking um, because uh, for the longest time they were trying to unify Europe. And you know, now it's, it's really getting to the point where Europe is, is you know, once again breaking up where you have um, certain countries, Finland, Estonia, even Slovakia, who were saying, you know, screw this, you know, we're not, we don't want to do this anymore. Um, and you know, in other countries like Italy and Spain and Portugal that are you know the beneficiaries that are recipients. But the dirty little secret is is that it was designed like this from the beginning. You know the people that actually framed the euro pretty much knew this was going to happen. And for them, it was really more important that there be a political union rather than you know a realistic currency and economic union. And so I mean all this has just really been, been a long time coming. And, and what's so bizarre is that when they step up and they say, you know, Mario Draghi says, here's my solution, guys, I'm going to print money with no limit whatsoever. And the market goes, hooray, it's fixed. And they actually delude themselves in thinking that it's actually, you know, everything is going to be okay, which is absurd, because that's, in many cases, been the cause of the problem to begin with. So the financial system, the price discovery mechanism, and all the things that the market is supposed to do has become completely fractured. And it's, it's by far the worst in Europe. It's gotten in many cases, you know, to the point that, you know, governments are just going shopping in people's bank accounts. If you're simply suspected of possibly maybe owing the government money on your taxes, they go and they freeze your account, they freeze your assets. I mean, all these types of things. I mean, it's really become quite draconian and, and people are just getting hosed. So, yeah, I mean, I go to Europe every year. I spend usually a couple months every year and it was just a huge difference between you know, summer 2012 and summer 2011 and summer. I mean, when I think about Europe now versus two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, I mean, it's, it's just a night and day difference. And we've seen this huge, I mean, a very rapid change, like you mentioned, in Europe. Can you make a, like a prediction over the next few years of what it's going to look like? Is it going to be more draconian in this way or do you see it getting better? What's going to happen? Well, that's a tough one. I mean, uh, there's so many factors, you know, at play. The whole thing is really a confidence game when it comes down to it. I mean, we're talking about a confidence in the union, a confidence in uh, the currency, a confidence in politicians and the government and the central bank, you know, the confidence in the market, the market's confidence and all these things. There's so many actors, so many players. 
you know, it's really hard. But if you kind of step back and look at the big picture, I mean, the whole thing really is based on confidence. When you think about the nature of a currency, for example, I mean, we're talking about fiat currency. It's not backed by anything. It's just a piece of paper that there's a small, tiny handful of people that controls, you know, how much of this paper there is. They want another trillion euros, they get another trillion euros, you know, and there's just a handful of people that controls that. And so this piece of paper has value simply because everybody agrees that it has value. And if you kind of frame a mathematical model, the number of people who agree that the currency has value is directly proportional to the number of people who agree the currency has value. In other words, you know, if there's only one guy who says, hey, here's my currency, nobody's going to take it seriously. If there's a million, 10 million, or 100 million, obviously that means many more people are going to do that. If you think about the next, the marginal effort to convince one more person to accept the currency, that marginal effort to convince one person is much smaller if there's more people who already accept it. So if there's, again, only one person, it takes a lot of convincing to, conv to convince the next guy. But there's 100 million people who all use the currency, then it's much easier to convince that one extra person. It works the same in reverse. If people stop using the currency, if they lose confidence in the currency, it works the same way. The fewer people have confidence in the currency, then the fewer people will have confidence in the currency and so on. It becomes easier and easier. More people start dropping like flies. It becomes, in mathematical terms, it's exponential decay. And in exponential decay, it's like what Hemingway said about going bankrupt. It's slow at first and then it happens all at once. You know, so you ask me what happens over the next couple of years. Well, it's really hard to say. If you think about an exponential decay curve, it's sort of flat in the beginning and then it just sort of falls off the cliff. And so where are you in that curve? Where is Europe in that curve? Is there, are they sort of, you know, in the middle of the flat part? Are they nearing the precipice? You know, are they already kind of started to go over the precipice? It's very hard. To, it, it's really hard to say. But what's clear is what the, what the trajectory is. And so whether that happens in a month or six months or five years, it's really impossible to say because there's just too many, you know, too many factors at play. But one thing is for sure is that nations that print and nations that debt themselves get into really, really, really deep trouble. And uh, there's really only been one country in the history of the world that's ever been able to, you know, grow its way out of debt. Um, and, uh, and that was in the UK in the 1800s, and they had the Industrial Revolution at their back. And so I'm sorry, I just don't see anything like that right now. So what we're really talking about is the end of the way that we exchange value currently with, with fiat currency. And so how do you see that whole change in the way we think about currency and the way we think about value really changing? So we can't really predict when it's going to break down, but we see the trajectory. How do you see life after that trajectory, after the fiat currency breaks down, what are some practical strategies that people can take to kind of hedge against this problem? There's a, a vested interest on the part of any and all government to try and maintain the status quo. And the status quo is quite simple. It's, you know, their power at everyone else's expense. It's the power of a tiny elite group few of people, uh, you know, that has, that has, you know, is, that is authorized to uh, you know, print currency and indebt future generations and kill people and steal from people and wage war and drop bombs in faraway lands. And this small, tiny group of people should have that power. And it's kind of absurd when you think about it. In relation to, you know, in relation to currency, I mean, I think that this whole, the whole concept of currency and government goes hand in hand where people wake up and suddenly they realize that all the stuff they were brought up to believe is total BS and that, you know, the government isn't really there for them at all. And that, you know, this piece of paper that they thought had value doesn't really have value. 
you know, history is pretty clear on this as well, is that for the most part, people, human beings, I mean, will really put up with a lot of BS. They'll take a lot of heat um, and deal with a lot of stuff from, from their governments. They'll deal with higher taxes and some level of subjugation and a decline in their freedoms. But as soon as people have trouble putting food on the table for their families, you have a big problem. You have a huge problem. And this is usually the breaking point where most people, you know, grab their pitchforks and go running out in the streets, banging pots and pans and demanding change. And so what happens with that change? Well, the government's probably going to try and create some temporary solution. This is what we see when, when nations default, or in many cases here in Latin America, it's been a common thing where they just uh, create a new currency. You know, they've done it in a number of different countries uh, where they take, you know, they take a, a peso and it becomes the el peso nuevo or something like this. You know, it's the new peso or the strong peso. So they create a new currency and hopefully, you know, this kind of staves off people's uh, anger for a little while. You know, but it doesn't really last. And I think really where we're going is sort of the end game of of this fiat experiment. And that's really what it's been. It's been an experiment, this idea that a small handful of people should have the power to just conjure as much money as they want to out of thin air in their in their sole discretion. And um, just like in that sort of exponential decay, the more people realize that, the more people go seeking alternatives. Precious metals are, you know, are really a great option simply because it has such a historical tradition associated with it. Precious metals are kind of interesting because in a way it's a bit like anything else, why do gold and silver have value? Well, it's because everybody else agrees that gold and silver has values, but in a way it seems sort of arbitrary. The thing about precious metals though is that they are scarce. And, um, and one of the things that I actually think is a, a really great subset of that for people to look into are rare coins, um, simply because if you look at coins, you know, you look at some, for example, St. Gowden rare coins, uh, from you know, from the 1930s, they're not making any more of those. They can always pull more gold and silver out of the ground, but they're not making any more coins that were minted in 1930. It's impossible. You know, other things. I mean, I'm pretty heavily invested in agriculture, um, particularly outside of the United States. And um, you know, this is one of those things that, no matter what happens in the world, it's pretty hard for me to feel like I, I'm I'm going to get hurt when you know I have a, a great source of my own organic food. You know, if things get really bad, then I'm going to be just fine. And if and if things happen to be uncomfortably inflationary, then I happen to have the perfect, you know, inflation hedge through with with agricultural property. So, I mean, I think there's a, there's a number of different things, but I think the most important thing is for people to actually recognize what's happening and then have the will to take action. Because it's easy to go, well, I see the writing on the wall and kind of shake your head and go, well, this sucks, and and then not do anything about it. It's much easier to just kind of turn on the TV and tune out. But having the will to actually take action and do something, you know, takes a, I, I think, a little bit more. And my my hope is that more and more people are are kind of waking up every day and starting to do that. We talked with uh, Robert Newarth before in the, in the previous interview about how System D and survival economies have been able to keep these countries going that have just not been able to sustain government and you know tax systems and, and the poor people there and the people that don't have real jobs, quote unquote, that are able to tax by the government are able to survive and they're able to thrive in these environments. How, how do these kind of uh, non-official systems of economy make their ways in, into places like Europe or even the United States to kind of replace the economies that are going away. I know you've traveled in Africa and South America, and those places um, have very substantial System D uh, survival economies. Well, it's already happening uh, in Europe. 
for sure. Um, you know, if you look in uh, particularly in Spain and Portugal to a degree, there's definitely a growing uh, portion of, of the economy that is now, you know, the informal sector. There's always been a large part of the economy in, in Eastern Europe as well, in Russia and Ukraine. Um, it's actually in, in Argentina as well. Some of these places, the informal economy is so is such a huge part. It's actually, I mean, it's a sort of a formal informal economy and, and, and the government even recognizes it. But these things always crop up because people are people when people don't have economic freedom, they skirt the system and and do things underground. And it is the natural consequence of what happens when people don't have economic freedom. And so, you know, I mean, it's it's something I think we'll probably see more and more and more of in the developed West, in particular in the United States. Now, are there lessons that you've learned seeing the economies in Africa, for example? What are some things happening there that we don't necessarily know about or, or hear about in regular journalism or Western media about stories in Africa and their economic development? Africa is easily the most exciting region in the world, uh, in my opinion. There's there's so much wealth being created there, so many extraordinary opportunities and it's it's really getting better and better. Just like I go to Europe every year, I go to Africa every year. And just like every year, Europe seems to be getting worse and worse. Africa is getting better and better and better. And it's really an amazing thing to see. You know, I think that in particular, the region in Africa that has the most potential, the most, the most upside potential right now is Southern Africa. Um, so we're talking Namibia, Angola, uh, Botswana, South Africa, Tanzania, I mean, these are the places that are the, the most developed, you know, they have the, the, the easiest, most transparent institutions, relatively speaking, um, the least risk. So really quite a bit of opportunity in these places, and they're getting better and better and better every year. It's really a great thing to see. I mean, even Zimbabwe, I've been in Zimbabwe several times, and it's pretty sad to see when you think about it, that Zimbabwe is getting so much better and Italy and Portugal in such terminal decline. It's, it's kind of pathetic. One of the things that when we think about this kind of global civilizational trend that we're on, it's easy to see the things that are happening in the United States and easy to see the things that are happening in Spain or Italy and say, wow, this whole planet is just going down the tubes. Is that the case or is there really reason for optimism in some of these other places? This is by far, in my opinion, one of the most exciting times to be alive. Uh, I think people have every reason to be optimistic. Um, the thing is, is that, you know, when you can you, when you can see the writing on the wall and you can look back, I mean, so many times throughout history, whether it was, you know, the French Revolution, uh, the decline of the Ottoman Empire, the decline of the Roman Empire, the decline of the Habsburg Empire. I mean, so many different instances throughout history. You see the same conditions and the same consequences. You see, you know, a bloated state budget devaluing their currency, you know, overextended military, excess regulation, et cetera, et cetera, you know, rise of the police state, decline in economic freedom, decline in civil liberties. All these things happen in all of these places. They got to, you know, the Habsburg Empire, the French under Louis XVI. I mean, they got to the point where they had to borrow money to pay interest on the money they've already borrowed. They were so in debt, way, you know, up to their eyeballs and beyond. I mean, all this stuff, this is such a familiar tune. It's happened so many times before. And you look at the consequences, and the consequences were pretty much all the same. They had, you know, substantial turmoil, and you know, in, in most cases, revolution and civil unrest and, and shortages of resources, and it was a very difficult time. And so, when you look at, you know, similar causes, uh, similar consequences, and we see the exact same conditions, we have to really ask the question: Are we so different? Are we so different? I mean, our conditions are almost exactly the same. Can we really expect that we're so special 
that we're not going to suffer the same consequences. Of course, everybody thinks that throughout history. The Ottomans certainly thought that. They thought that they were special. And the French certainly thought that they were special and so on. Everybody always thought that they were special, but they're not. Nobody's special is that the laws of, of financial gravity, the laws of the financial universe apply equally to everybody without prejudice. And if you know that's going to happen, if you, if you just, you know, just do a little bit of research and a little bit of reading and you see what's happened before and you sort of know the blueprint – it's an incredibly exciting time. It's so just a tremendous opportunity. It's like what I tell people. It's sort of like somebody handing you a time machine and saying, here's a history book on the French Revolution, and I'm going to send you back to 1788, right before it all happened. And you, you have this blueprint of exactly what's going to happen. And what, what an amazing time that would be. You, know, you would know exactly what to do and where to go and where to invest and, all, and you know, who to talk to and all those things you would know. And to me, we have that exact same opportunity now. It's just a question of if people are willing to listen. So could you go into a little bit more depth about that? I mean, it feels like a lot of people are just grasping at straws right now. Where do we put your money? Should we be investing in this 401k? Should we be going to gold? How do, you, how do you know what the right thing to do is? That's a great question. The rule of thumb that I always have is do what makes sense no matter what. Because remember what I was talking about. If we're on, If you imagine that exponential decay curve where it's – you know, it's kind of flat and slowly, gradually declining, and then all of a sudden it just falls off a cliff. And you don't really know where we are if we make the analogy to the French Revolution. Are we France in 17, you know, 1788, 1781, 1770? I mean, you know, we don't really know for sure exactly where we are on that exponential decay curve, which is why it makes sense to take actions that makes sense no matter what happens, you know, and maybe, you know, maybe aliens come to visit the earth tomorrow and give everybody free energy and stocks of food and, you know, whatever. I mean, and the unicorns come out to play and all that sort of great stuff. And we're all saved from all this political folly. Okay, great. So do it makes sense no matter what. And so it's why, you know, nobody has been able to convince me that it's a bad idea to own precious metals and store them in a vault overseas in a place like Singapore. Nobody's ever been able to convince me that it's a bad idea to have, you know, a bank account in Hong Kong outside of the of the of the jurisdiction of my home country. Nobody's been able to convince me that it's a bad idea to have, you know, a huge farm that produces, you know, a plethora of organic fruits and vegetables. I mean, nobody's been able. These are not bad ideas. These are great ideas, no matter what happens. Because if everything turns out to be okay, great. This all just this stuff all makes sense no matter what. If things don't turn out okay and the thesis actually holds up, then this is the kind of stuff that makes an enormous difference. An enormous difference. Last year we had the Arab Spring, all the countries in North Africa uprising. You went to Tunisia and I was wondering what it was like seeing a country that recovered or is starting to build itself back from a revolution like that because that's the kind of revolution that's only just now starting to go underway in in Europe and there's a possibility that it could happen in a place like the United States and in the future. What is it like to see a country as it starts to piece itself back together? I'll tell you. I mean, I was in Tunisia, I was in uh, I was in Egypt. I actually tried to get out to Libya um about a month and a half ago, but uh, just couldn't get it done this time. You know, going to these places, it's it's kind of interesting because you think uh, I was trying to explain it like using the definition of the word revolution. When you think about revolution, what it means in a celestial sense, we're talking about one complete. You know, as the Earth revolves around the Sun, we're talking about one complete period around. Uh, you know, in orbit. 
where you end up exactly in the same place where you started. When the Earth completes its revolution around the sun, it ends up in the exact same place where it started. And in many cases, when these countries have experienced revolution, they pretty much end up right back where they started. Um, Egypt was the most pronounced because they took Hosni Mubarak, a dictator, and they traded him for a military dictator. And they ended up not very well, and they were right back protesting and rioting again, not too long after the original revolution. And in Tunisia, they've had you know similar problems. All this stuff is a very long-term process. It's not like you have revolution and that everything's okay the next day or the next month or the next year. It's a very, very long-term process because what we're really talking about, what's required is an entire system reset. And if you look back in the history of the United States, it was really the same thing. I mean, the, from the time that they declared independence to the time that uh, you know the war was over and then they went through the articles of uh, confederation and then they framed the constitution and then they actually elected the government and formed the government and, be, and things sort of settled down finally and then the whiskey rebellion and so on. It was actually quite a long period of time and so things just don't happen overnight and um, you know these places are definitely still going through some, some pretty intense challenges. I wanted to ask you advice for people under the age of 30. I know you wrote a, a blog about that. Well, you know, I mean, it really depends on the situation. You know, if people are in a good situation where they're at, if some, you know, somebody's uh, doing quite well, they've got a high-paying job, they've got family, those kinds of things, great. You know, milk it for as long as you can, but be cognizant about what's happening. Um, you have to understand kind of what's happening in the world, so it makes a lot of sense. You look at what's happening in Italy. I mean, this is a country that's gone, that's that's completely bankrupt, totally insolvent. And now they're digging people's bank accounts trying to make ends meet. They've imposed capital controls, that sort of thing. That's why it's important to do things like hold gold and silver overseas, have a, have a foreign bank account. These are important things to do. And so if you're, you know, if you're in your home country and you're doing well, then make sure you're doing these things and taking appropriate steps. If you're not and you're kind of living with your parents because there's absolutely no sense of opportunity whatsoever where you're at, then get on a plane and go somewhere. Head to a healthy country, a healthy economy. My buddy in Singapore, for example, owns one of the happening nightclubs in the place. And this guy's paying cocktail waitresses $100,000 a year. And it's actually a really smart thing for him to do. And I mean, I've got friends that are, I mean, they're doing some really amazing things overseas. There's guys in Mongolia right now that are making generational fortunes. There's people in Africa doing the same thing. I mean, there's so much opportunity in the world. And when you stay in one place that's devoid of, of opportunity, it, start, it starts to affect your thinking. You think the whole world is like that, and it's not. There's really some really, really, really great good news stories out there. And so I really just recommend people hop on a plane and, and, uh, and get overseas somewhere and, and dig deep and make it happen because there's really just a tremendous amount of opportunity out there. One of the main debates that we kind of get into on our show is like, how does the system actually break down as it breaks down? And I'm wondering if throughout your travels, you've gained some insights into the ways that people think about how an economy falls apart versus how it actually does as it plays out. I don't think anybody thinks that the economy is falling apart or, you know, sees it as it's happening. Most people are generally reactionary. And so they don't really see it happening until they go to the grocery store one day and go, holy crap, I can't believe how much that gallon of milk has become uh, or something like that. So it's one of those things that they only see it as it happens. And most of the time, they don't really process. I mean, it's, it's the analogy that I was saying, it's those subtle day-to-day -day changes, like a parent who doesn't notice those subtle day-to-day -day changes in, in their children. And in the same way, when you're there, you're sort of in the vacuum in the system. It's a boiling frog analogy. You don't necessarily notice the, the, the rise in temperature. Most people don't put it all together when they look back and go, 
gee, I remember, you know, 15 years ago, I didn't have to take off my shoes. I wasn't getting molested by these people. The government wasn't freezing my bank account. I didn't have capital controls and so on and so on. All these things all together, the aggregate of all of these factors all together. I don't think really most people kind of think about that and draw the conclusion of, you know, this is some kind of, uh, you know, collapse. I think what I've seen around the world is that, again, it usually comes down to some catastrophic event. Um, in the case of, you know, the Arab Spring, it, there was there was some spark. In this case, it was a guy lighting himself on fire, you know, that just propelled people out into the streets to demand change. I don't think that people really, you know, get the... It, it, it's, it's the same thing as what I was saying, that confidence, you know, is that confidence game. And, and, you know, you lose confidence very quickly. The more people lose confidence, the more people lose confidence. So I don't know that there's a, there's a steady, you know, progression to it or any kind of analysis at all or people... I don't I don't think most people really see it until it actually happens and they're experiencing it. So uh, going off that last point, only 30% of people in the United States have their passport. So this is one of the most wealthy countries in the whole world and only 30% even have their passport for traveling. Do you think that the goal of, of everyone's life nowadays, people, especially young people, should be to become well-traveled and even become an expatriate like our co-host Justin is? No, I mean, I think that uh, the whole goal is just uh, is to be happy and, and, and love your life and, and love what you do. It's a hell of a lot easier when you don't have to worry about all the turmoil and, and, and anxiety in the world. You know, but I think uh, for me, uh, as, as a guy who spends his whole life overseas, I mean, when I, traveling and being overseas, I see just a, just a, a multitude of opportunity on all fronts, whether it's things to improve your lifestyle, you know, or your finances or job opportunities, investment opportunities, business opportunities, you know, uh, you want to get whatever. I mean, cosmetic surgery done, it's so much cheaper and and really high quality in a place like Thailand um, where you can get these kinds of things done. I mean, whatever it is that you're into, when you open your horizons to the entire world, the possibilities you know, really go up so much. And I think everybody, everybody benefits from that. So, you know, I don't know that that's necessarily the, the goal in life, but I think when you open your mind, you know, overseas, internationally to all the possibilities, it's just something that you can only possibly benefit from. I wanted to ask about untold stories in the global economy. What are some of the best untold stories at the moment? I was having dinner with a friend of mine in Singapore not too long ago. And, um, he, he has a maid, um, and she was serving his dinner. And um, I noticed she was, a, she was a young, very striking, very beautiful girl from India, um, very young. And as she was serving his dinner, and when she leaned over, kind of put the plate down in front of me, and I looked um, kind of right around at her collarbone. She had some, some, uh, some like scars, pretty significant scar tissue. And I asked my friend, I go, hey, what, what happened to her? Is she okay? And he said, well, you know, she's had a really difficult life. Um, and he explained to me that this girl was, you know, one of these sort of child brides from India and was married to some guy who in India, this little tiny village who used to, uh, you know, beat her and rape her and abuse her. And whenever he felt like it, he would actually pin her down and light her on fire. And this was this girl's life. And so she felt like she had to escape and so she did. So she fled her little tiny village and brought great dishonor upon her family. This is, I mean, the, the expected thing to do is that she would just live the rest of her life suffering and getting lit on fire by this scumbag. 
So she escaped, you know, fled her village, made her way to Mumbai, you know, and single woman traveling across India. This is actually a pretty harrowing experience and finally made her way to Singapore. And I remember thinking <laughs> I had just come, uh, I think I had been, you know, recently been in a couple of places in the U.S. before that and seeing all these protests, all these people standing around saying, we are the 99%. And I think, and I look at that, and I think to myself, you're not the 99%, you know, give me a break. Like nobody, nobody's ever lit you on fire. I mean, people who come from wealthy countries by definition are the 1%. And we haven't had to taste that kind of desperation before ever. And it's a really extraordinary thing, you know, to see people who have been in that situation and had the courage to, you know, step up and move forward. So this is a, this was a woman who was in a horrible, horrible situation and she realized that there was something better out there and she had the courage to go out there and find it and do it. And so now, you know, she's, you know, she's, she's earning money, she's studying, you know, she's improving her life and has a much better future now as a result. And I think this sense of just kind of in wealthy countries, you see people standing around complaining, 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 protesting. They want their government to do something, give us money, you know, tax these people. I mean, it's, it's just not the right move. It's not the right signal. It's not what people ought to be doing. I mean, the fact is, is that people are responsible for themselves and they're responsible to themselves and only to themselves. And, and we can only really be reliant on ourselves. And so I think the sooner that people realize that, and get out there in the world and have the courage to make better decisions that will improve their own lives, the better off we'll all be. Well, thanks for your time today, Simon. We really appreciate you joining us from Chile. How can people subscribe to your work or find your wisdom on any kind of regular basis? <laughs> well, that's, that's a kind way to put it. I appreciate that. But uh, <laughs> it's, uh, we have a, a free website. It's, it's totally free. We give away a lot of really great information about a lot of the things that we talked about banking and gold stores and all these sorts of things. Um, and uh, it's at sovereignman.com. And uh, you can just go there and sign up for free and it'd be great. So thanks to Simon Black for joining us to talk about what it's like to be in a different country nearly every week. For me, that's not the lifestyle I would go with, but it certainly sounds amazing. We talk about so many trends that are going on on our planet right now, and a lot of them can look really bleak. I talk to a lot of people in our generation, and a lot of them don't seem to have a lot of hope for their economy, for growing up and having a meaningful career. Then we talk to Simon Black, and he says that this is one of the most optimistic and amazing times to be alive ever. 
Do you really think that there are other countries where uh, optimism can really exist without a uh, bubble being blown, a bubble economy like we have uh, in the United States or, or in Canada with their housing bubble? Well, Justin, I think it's easy to get wrapped up in the economy going bust. I think it's easy to look at the numbers declining and, and seeing job loss on the rise and to just feel really discouraged. You know, I, I see people getting out of school and just looking around for jobs and, and, and just having a terrible time. But like Simon Black said, knowing that this big trend in economic decline is coming is actually a large roadmap for opportunity. So if you look at it and say, hey, I see that these trends are happening. What can I do to prepare myself financially, physically, mentally for these trends that are coming along? What can I do to make myself indispensable in this new economy, in this new way of thinking, in this new world to make myself available for this kind of thing? It's, it actually could be a very hopeful time. And it's all about how you think about it. You know, people are still going to get married. People are still going to need food to eat and hard labor to be done. So those human characteristics of what it means to live in this world are never going to go away. And to be involved in those skills and to have abilities to share with people as long as there are humans on this planet are going to be needed. And Simon was talking about how to prepare and he was saying that he was investing heavily in organic agriculture. And we heard her in our last episode with Dmitry Orlov and Lucas Folia when he was interviewing people off the grid and they were preparing organic agriculture and preparing to know a lot about agriculture in case there was a systemic breakdown. And even the investment analyst, Mark Faber, he was saying, you're going to need a farm when all the financial system goes broke. And so it's interesting to also hear that from from Simon Black and hearing, you know, if you have money to invest, put it into farming, or if you don't have money to invest, which means you're probably from our generation, then learn how to farm or learn how to participate in a meaningful way in organic agriculture. But at the same time, I'm a little bit skeptical that Chile or, or Mongolia or Singapore are going to be able to keep growing as the global fiat currency crisis really strikes because, you know, to some extent, isn't their development based on selling stuff to Western nations? Although at the same time, you know, even though China is really hurting right now, it's not like they're loaded down with the same amount of debt that we have in the U.S. or in Western European countries. So maybe if they do fall apart, they'll be able to pick themselves up quite a bit faster. I think that's the point that Simon's trying to make there is that those countries are going to be able to at least and partly to survive based on their local economies. But like you say, Justin, everyone now is linked up to this larger economic system that is very much linked to the world economy. And when one part starts failing, it's just a matter of time until it affects the rest of the, the planet. Yeah, so even if there is perhaps a slowdown in some of these countries that are just starting to get growing, uh, maybe it won't affect them that much. Or maybe they'll be able to recover because perhaps they're using a development model that doesn't blow a huge credit bubble. Or maybe they are. I really don't know enough to be able to weigh in. And that's why we need your voicemails, your emails, and your reports to really tell us if you're on the ground in one of these countries. Is there a reason for optimism? Or do you see systemic uh, problems that are structural that could expose themselves if growth slows? So even though we talk a lot about the negative aspects of economic growth on our show, there's definitely a strong case to be made that there's a lot of countries that really do need to grow economically, not in the same way that we've developed in the Western world, but definitely need to grow because every unit of, say, fossil fuels or material that they put into their economy 
produces such a huge dividend and such a huge return in our economy. We're just trying to maintain what we have, and we can't even do that. And as these formal economies begin to crumble, and we've already seen that happening in many places around the world, these informal economies that Robert Neuwirth talked about start creeping in. These are the places where the trade and barter systems are more prevalent and where goods are actually traded for services and services are traded for goods. These are the places we see in in some of the poor nations around the world where Walmarts have not invaded and set up shop, where corporate brands are still on the periphery in a lot of ways and where people still trade things for things, <laughs> which is sometimes a very difficult concept to think about here in the West. Yeah, and I think that's why government collapse doesn't have to equal total economic collapse. That doesn't mean that everything just is gone and you're living in this scarce world where there's no economy. Yeah, things will be a lot harder to come by as governments continue on this trend of going bankrupt, as this trajectory that Simon Black was talking about of going bankrupt. But the more that we can build meaningful skills and start to build local economies uh, that are often informal economies, we're going to be much better off because, as Robert Neuwirth was saying, this really is the survival economy. This is how people get by in hard times, and it's how a lot of the immigrants who made up the population that's now today, Canada and the United States, got off the ground when they moved here. But going back to what Simon Black was saying, one thing that really struck me is when he was watching the Occupy protests and everybody was saying, hey, you know, we're the 99%, stop screwing us over 1%. Um, He was saying that's not true at all. We're all the 1% in the developed world. And we've been sitting in this really privileged position to have uh, so many things that the 99% of the world really does not have. The people in Chile and, and South Africa and uh, and even other countries like Paraguay and, and Singapore, places where there really is abject poverty and they're extremely innovative and they know how to get by. And that story that he told about the woman from India who fled and then made it to Singapore and as she's earning money to get an education, I mean, that's incredibly inspiring. And I just don't know if a lot of people that I've grown up with really have that kind of, of courage to be able to do something like that just to better their lives. That's right, Justin. Here in the West, we have a huge amount of privilege. And really, I think what is going to happen as as this economic landslide continues to move through the economy is there's going to be a great leveling effect where everyone kind of begins to have the same sort of lifestyle. The net energy use kind of levels off where we in the in the United States and Canada have the same sort of energy usage and 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 availability as somebody in say China or India where we have to make do with the same kind of goods and the same kind of opportunity as what we have on the other side of the world. And while this might be extremely painful for us, us in the West who have had such privilege in our lives and had su- have had such opportunity, it's going to be a real change for the people in countries who have not had this sort of opportunity in the past. So for some, it might be a, a large step down, but for others, it's going to be a huge step up. Over the last few years, there's been so many discussions about how these impoverished nations are rising up, and a lot of people have this idea that they're going to suddenly reach this Western standard of life, but I don't really think that's the case at all. I think if you follow in what Simon Black was talking about in looking at Portugal, Italy, or like Spain and Greece, as we've discussed with Robert Neuwirth on this episode, these countries are undeveloping, and they're undeveloping rapidly. They're overdeveloped, as we talked with uh, Manfred Max Neef last year, 
these are all overdeveloped nations, and suddenly they're going to start reaching a standard where they look a lot more like the countries where Simon is is investing in agriculture and opening up second bank accounts and. So uh, at the end of the day, we might think that our economy has just completely collapsed and our lives are miserable, but we could go down to maybe Guatemala and say, hey, now we live like these guys. Now we live like the people who live in these countries all around the world that we've been able to look down at. And now we're all going to be on a much more level playing field. It's going to be a very interesting world to live in when everyone across the globe is living in the same sort of economic conditions. Well, I, I don't I don't know if everybody will be. I think there's still going to be an elite 1% kind of dynamic where, um, you know, the Mitt Romneys of the world, the, um, the Lloyd Blank finds, all those guys are still trying to maintain what they can. But as Dmitry Orlov was saying, you know, as the world of money decays and these guys realize that money doesn't buy everything, it's really about who do you know and what and what are they willing to do for you and how useful your skills are that maybe uh, they're going to have a lot of a harder time than we thought. And he brought up the rash of suicides. You know, we were talking about suicides last episode and it's a horribly bleak topic uh, with Dmitry Orlov, but I didn't realize he was talking about now. Did you see last week on Fox News they showed a suicide on live national television? I mean, what? that's... Yeah, that's really? insane. Yeah, they were showing a car chase, and then the guy jumped out of the car and shot himself, and they showed it on live TV. But not only that, I was reading an article in The Telegraph, and it was about how now the United States that has a huge rash of uh, deaths by automobiles, actually the number of suicides is much greater in the United States than the people who are dying in car accidents. That's how much things have changed in the last few years. Wow. And so you might think that Dmitry Orlov was talking about the future, but he's he's really talking about now. The, the economic situation in so many of the developed nations are so poor that you really do have to have that deeper meaning in your life and that will to keep going without some dream of consumerism at the other end. Otherwise, you really do face uh, very bleak prospects. So while capitalism might be changing in the United States and the American dream of an easy life might be going away, one thing that's not going away is John Michael Greer answering your questions. With regard to the informal economy, that, that's, a, that's a nice polite way of, of talking about it. People used to say the underground economy, the black market, there are various other ways to phrase it. All of that is simply a reflection of the pervasiveness of government regulation, government um, taxation, government prohibition. The only reason that most of this stuff doesn't exist on the above board economy is that Either governments won't allow it, or they make it uneconomic, or what have you. It's just—it's simply a reflection of the way that our society has moved toward greater and greater and greater complexity, even when complexity no longer makes any kind of sense at all. So, I'm not at all surprised that there's what ten trillion dollars in, in informal economy that, that all this stuff is going on increasingly under the radar. Um, Joseph Tainter's *The Collapse of Complex Societies* argues that one of the ways that societies come unglued is that they get more complex and more complex and more complex, loading layers upon layers upon layers of paperwork and bureaucracy and all these intricacies and taxation and regulation, until it becomes impossible for anybody to do much of anything without either going around it or just letting it all crash to the ground. And so I would say the rise of the informal economy is a very good measure of the extent to which the, the sort of 
complexity collapse that Tainter describes is well on its way. Now let's go on to the questions. Chris in Florida mentions that he was he, he read one of my end of the world of the week posts on the Archdrude Report and commented that he, he had noticed the end of the world meme was relatively absent from the media lately. Now it's never safe to judge much of anything by what's in the media because the media exists to sell soap. I mean, more broadly, it exists to sell products. It is not there to inform you. It is not there to do you any good at all. It is there to reach into your pocket and, and pull money out of your wallet to make you buy products. And so if this week you can, they can sell more soap by, by talking about the end of the world, they will do so. If next week they can, tell, they can sell more soap by um, talking about something else, they'll do that. It just kind of you know, goes back and forth depending on the, on the subtleties of mood and also what kind of fads are moving through the minds of the advertisers these days. So I think we're going to see a lot of material on the end of the world or various apocalyptic this and that as we proceed, um, partly because the whole December 21st, 2012, uh, what will later be known as, known as Nothing Happened Today, is getting closer. Um, and also just because a lot of people are getting very stressed out by the changes going on in the world these days. And it's always much more enticing to think of it all ending in a vast fireball of one kind or another than to realize that it's going to be something you're going to have to live with for the rest of your life. Okay, Gary in Los Angeles asks, what would the ideal Archdruid-designed transportation plan look like for a local or national level? Now, that's not, that's not exactly a small question. The ideal transportation plan would not be designed by anyone, not an Archdruid or anyone else. One of the things we've learned in dealing with complex systems is that if you try to design a complex system, you're going to fail you're going to produce something that somebody's head trip and it's going to be a real mess with all kinds of unintended consequences. The most useful thing to do is simply as, you know, as, as our supply of transportation fuels winds down, as we have to start dealing with less and less of the capacity to drive, just peop if, as people respond to that reality, a system will evolve. A system will come into being out of individual choices. That's the sort of of evolutionary perspective instead of the kind of top-down planning that tends to produce the most useful responses over time. Ren in Oregon commented, I heard he left Oregon. Oh, well, yes, actually that was more than three years ago now. Um, these days I live in Cumberland, Maryland, which is a little red brick mill town in the north central Appalachians. Um, very pleasant place and um, very, low, very high quality of life, very low cost of living. Um, why did I move? Long, complex series of issues. Um, one of them being that I, you know, left coast yuppie culture does tend to wear after a little while. Okay, Michael in face, on Facebook asks, if I can have a public dialogue with Alan Moore about magic. Well, I suppose. I'm, I'm not a great fan of, graph, of uh, graphic novels. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not particularly into them. Um, as far as I know, Mr. Moore has not read any of my stuff. Um, the varieties of magic we practice are very different. And although I suppose we could have a long conversation about the benefits of, of, of facial hair, I imagine that would get kind of dull for the audience after a little while. I announced in my last August post that I was taking September off. I've been on hiatus since, since the beginning of September. It's been more than three years since I've had any kind of break on the Archdrude Report. So I've, I've been putting my feet up a bit, getting some, getting some sauerkraut canned, and getting things ready for um, the next round, which will begin next Wednesday. And if you have questions for John Michael Greer, send them to us through email, post it on our Facebook page, 
or leave us a voicemail and let us know what John Michael Greer should be talking about. And that goes back to our voicemail line. If you want to give us a call, we'd be glad to use your voicemail in one of our interviews. If you have a question that's burning and you need answered, if you have a suggestion for the show... You know, if you think Dmitry Orlov's view of the world is spot on or if it's too bleak or if you think that an informal economy will or will not rise up in the United States, we need to hear. So let us know and give us a call. And Seth, how can people leave us a voicemail? People can leave us a voicemail in our online voicemail box at any time of the day or night from anywhere in the whole world by dialing plus one nine one nine seven zero one nine eight seven two. And those last four digits are XTRA on your touchtone telephone. People can also find us on Facebook, on Twitter, at X Environmental. People can find us on Facebook where we have almost 700 likes on Facebook, which is fantastic. Like They can listen to segments of our show. If you don't want to listen to the whole entire episode, you can listen to segments on SoundCloud where we have the show broken up where you can feel free to post these segments on your friends' walls so they can listen to a section, get interested, and then go listen to the whole episodes as well. We are on terrestrial radio all over Canada where people can listen to the episodes using a real radio instead of a podcast machine. And people can send us email at podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com. And don't forget about Stitcher Radio, where you can listen to all of our episodes via a app on your smart device. If, like many listeners, you feel so strongly about the show that you want to send us a few dollars, we have some great deals set up, don't we, Justin? That is right, Seth. People who have been supporting the show and helping us expand our coverage with some exciting things of conferences that are coming up that we're going to be able to cover, um, as well as upping the audio quality. Because people are supporting us and helping us do that, we have some great offers that we are putting forward to our listening audience we are sending you stickers. If you donate $15, we're sending stickers all around the world. We will send you stickers if you donate more than $15, $15 or more to the show. And then you can put those stickers on all the things that you own, on your books, on your bikes, on, on your kids, on streets, yeah, on your friends, as one listener sent us in. Um, and they are some sharp-looking stickers. Or if you donate $30 or more, we will ship you a T-shirt anywhere in the world, as well as stickers. And every donation gets access to our special bonus content that we put together a few times a year. Recently was a lecture that I recorded here in Vancouver about uh, where the environmental movement goes next. It was really interesting. And so, yeah, there's been a lot of people who have been donating. Seth, who has been donating to the show recently? That's right, Justin. We've had an incredible outpouring of, sh of donations. I have a list here. We heard from Chris Jones in the United Kingdom, who sent us in a great donation. We heard from Kevin Jones, who is, I don't think they're related, because that guy's in Washington. We heard from Kevin Jones from Washington. I don't think they're related. Do you think so, Justin? I don't know. You never know. One of them's in the United Kingdom. The other one is in Washington State on an island, I think one of the San Juan Islands. So I don't think Kevin and Chris are related. That's right. Uh, we heard from Stella from uh, the Northern Territory of Australia. That's pretty far away. Yeah, we got a great email from Stella telling us about her journey into permaculture and dealing with the challenges of growing up in this tumultuous economic time. And we really appreciated hearing Stella's story. And uh, we were so fortunate to have her as a listener. Yeah, Stella, you're not alone out there. And thanks for sharing your great story with us. We heard from Duncan in Oregon who shared a great story with us about how he's 
quitting all of his jobs and he's buying a whole bunch of recording equipment and and starting his own podcast and recording music and that you know that that's just very inspiring to hear that people are actually understanding the message of the show and and making life changes about it it's, it's great to hear that um he has been listening to the show and it's been influential to him and also that he's been hearing some clips of our show on kboo a local radio station in portland so it's great to know our creative commons licensed material is getting out there on various radio stations around the world we also received some donations from sander in the netherlands so thanks so much, Sander. We appreciate that. Also, Matthew in New York City. And also in New York City, Catherine, who's going to be wearing our shirt on uh, some dancing performances that she has coming up. So that's great you to know. And also, we got a donation from John in Ireland. Thank you so much, John, for making a contribution from Ireland. Yeah, Ireland representing. So we are deeply grateful for everybody who's funding the show. And we have some exciting news coming up about what, um, about what we're going to be doing. We're thinking that in the future with some of the changes that we're going to be making, some of the donations that you are making might actually become tax deductible. So we're going to be talking more about that soon. Yes, exciting changes in the extra environmentalists. This is episode number 50. We've been doing this show now for over two years, and we really had no idea when we started that it would grow and be listened to by so many amazing people all around the world in so many different countries, or that people would even talk to us like uh, accomplished writers like Robert Neuwirth. So we're deeply grateful for that. But in order to say thanks to all of you, we put together a special mixtape with the words of Judah Krishnamurti and some awesome music that we're going to be releasing in the next week or so onto our RSS feed for you to enjoy, just as a special way of saying thanks for listening to us over the last two years of The Extra Environmentalist. We've got so many amazing episodes in the works right now, and I've got to say that our next four or five episodes are just pretty mind-blowing in terms of the content, so get ready for that. 50 episodes has been a wild, wild ride from the beginning where we, where you and I were just talking. We didn't really have a lot of experience with this. And to be to now where we have talked to some of the greatest minds in the world, I'd say about these very, very interesting topics where, where, where we've learned so much ourselves. I mean, if you've listened to every episode of the Extra Environmentals from number one to number 50, you've had pretty much a graduate level education in the topics that we've covered. For all those listeners out there who have stuck with us the entire time we are eternally in your debt and for those of you who have shared us shared with our episodes with other people and who have bought, donated and, ha and we're wearing t-shirts now and put stickers up in your community there's not really a lot of words that describe the joy and happiness that i feel towards you just thanks to Kevin, who's been editing our episodes. He did a great job with Robert Newworth today. And we're so fortunate to have an amazing team that's helping us with our SEO, from Chris to Luisa, who's working on our blog, and everybody else who's helping out with the show. It's been a wild ride, and we hope that we'll be able to bring you more episodes in the future. And we hope that we'll be able to bring you another 50 episodes as we continue on this extra environmentalist adventure. And as John Michael Greer has talked about, as long as we have internet, we will be distributing the show as a podcast. But after the internet goes down, we'll be more than happy to provide copies to your local radio station by Pony Express or whatever form that things get shipped. Everybody keep spreading the word, keep putting out these ideas, keep making the changes that we need to happen, that we know are gonna happen, and 
be the change in your community that's going to be there to make it happen. So get out there and start a bank account in another country, start informal business, and invest in your system D economy. Thanks for listening. the Kenyan version, it's not exactly Bitcoin, but Kenya has M-Pesa, which Safaricom created, which is a use of the mobile phone to basically not have to carry cash around. So you can make transfers of cash through the Safaricom system on the mobile phone. And what isn't generally talked about is, is that the largest, by far the largest user of mobile cash in Kenya through the Safaricom M-Pesa program is a system D business at the wholesale vegetable market in downtown Nairobi. So it really is the system D traders that are making the Safaricom M-Pesa mobile phone cash exchange successful. They're the big users of it. So that's a pretty fruitful avenue and Bitcoin could be a big part of that. It's really important that you know, cities like Lagos and Kinshasa and Durban and places that are really, really growing fast have an opportunity to engage in a kind of uniquely African form of economic development if they can incorporate the informal communities and system D marketplaces in their development plans rather than just eradicating them and wiping them out and trying to emulate London or Paris or New York. Episode number 51 of The Extra Environmentalist, Stephen Jenkinson, joins us to talk about death, dying, and life in a dying culture. And the culture itself is beginning to die. I'm not talking about the rivers being fouled, although that's certainly a piece of it, or the air. You know, I'm not talking about the wretched economic uh, spirals uh, and, and the e- extravagant greed that, is, uh, that has become part of doing business and all of those things. They're all the signs. They're not the causes. Eh? But the culture itself is dying. So the challenge I give to the people who, who come to study with me in my school, for example, is, is just as follows. If the culture is dying, then what is asked of you? What's your idea?
Are you concerned that the economy is just going to go away? That's right, the free market's here to stay. Hello, I'm Mr. Adam, and I'm here with my friend Mr. Smith, and we're here to tell you about this week's specials at the free market, your neighborhood place that supplies your demand. That's right, Adam. We've got all sorts of deals going on today from all throughout the store. Let's head over to electronics. Yeah, that's right, uh, Mr. Smith. Uh, over here in the electronics section this week, we got a special on the printing presses. If you want to be part of the new rollout of quantitative easing 4, then you're going to need a printing press in your own house. You're going to want to be able to print that money at home with the Fed's new software program. That's right. You don't want to get stuck looking for a printing press when you're all out of money. Who wants to go to the ATMs? I sure don't. Oh, yes, that's right. Now, now let's go over to the eyewear department. Uh, for the industrialist with uh, places to be in the top hat and cane to go with that stretch limousine. This here is the monocle that you can wear when you need to forget something or anything while under oath. The only eyewear that will do is the monocle Lewinsky for the heightened fashion and the most lucrative look around. This eyewear will get you places. Now, let's go over to our postal section. Over here in our post office section, we have all the latest collector's edition food stamps. They're so wonderful for this time of year. If you're looking for that perfect gift for the little child who ran out of butterflies to kill and mount, and he's looking for something new to collect, all the latest food stamps. They're amazing. Well, I, I do enjoy me a food stamp from time to time. I know for the kids, the toy section is right where they want to be. Let's head over to the toy section. With uh, Christmas coming up, it's important to have something that that kid's really going to enjoy under the tree. And the hottest Christmas item this year is actually the Tickle Me Bohemian Grover. The Tickle Me Bohemian Grover we can hardly keep it on the shelf because it's definitely an elite item. Let me show you how it works. You just press it here in the tummy and you tickle it and here's what it goes. Hey, it's your old pal Grover. Let's hold an elite secret meeting and decide how to profit from the collapse of industrial civilization. Rah! Now, if you pull its arm, it even has more things. Let's do that. Rah! Let's burn a virgin in its ritual sacrifice ceremony. Rah! And if Tickle Me Grover isn't what you're looking for for your children, we have a special on our new series of Occupy protester action figures. They're 99% off. Well, that sounds like a deal if I ever heard one. Let's head over to the library section where I hear there's some great books to be found. Actually, Mr. Smith, that's not the case at all. Most everything that you can read here in our library is completely off the books. Well, I'll be a monkey's uncle. Let's head over to our footwear section. Oh, I love selling footwear. Here at the store, we've got some great new footwear for all the boys and girls getting ready for school. This year, we have the finest new bootstraps to pull yourself up by. No longer do you have to worry about not making it up into society. With these new bootstraps, you're guaranteed to make it to the 1%. And before we go, we've got to introduce you to our employee of the month, Ricardo. Ricardo, how's life been recently working here at the free market? They pay going international rate for wages. Ricardo only gets coupon for leftover stock of Tickle Me Bohemian Grover. And you know, I don't like Bohemian Grover too much. And it's not very tasty to eat Bohemian Grover. My family is very hungry and it's very difficult. All right, to thank eat. you. Thank you, Ricardo, for talking about how we use 
uh, our free market mechanisms to set wages. Yes, thank you very much. So, Mr. Smith. Yes, Mr. Adam? So that wraps up our total tour of this week's specials at the free market. I hope you'll come down. You can find us at the intersection of the tent city and the road to serfdom. So come on down to the free market for all of these amazing specials this week. We hope to see you there. Be on the lookout for hitchhikers and their visible hands. Mark, 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 mark.